Greetings, ladies and mandrogens, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer from Space, out, out, out. which will contain TFOS 898 to 911. And as always, I hope that you enjoy Tales from Outer Space 898. The Human Answered, written by Barsoom Israel. I was just three weeks out of training, and I already had it enough of this war. The threes were winning. They were ruthless, sadistic, and totally without mercy or compassion. Whenever they found one of our colonies, they started the occupation by destroying our birthing pools, killing our young while they were still in the larvae stage. Helpless. We fought back as best we could, but our ships were smaller, slower, and poorly armed. We faced a war of extinction, and yet our leaders kept trying diplomacy. After every meeting with the enemy, they promised to stop their actions, but they never did. They always just lied to our leaders, and our leaders lapped it up like the groveling dogs that they were. I was assigned to the third response unit, outfitted with one of our race's newest ships, top of the line, state of the art, but still a joke compared to the enemy's. One thing on my ship did have going for it was a small, faster-than-light engine. Unheard of, really, in such a small vessel. An idea came to me as I lay in my bunk, talking with my wingmate. We were discussing how we just fled from the three in assault, giving up an entire planet to them, condemning every one of us still left on that rock to a gruesome death. You know what, I said. My arms draped over my eye stalks as if to hide from the fate that we just imposed on the many of our race. I think the humans were right. My wingmate coughed and shook. Why bring those crazies into it? He asked. Don't we have enough to contend with already? Humans. What they did? It opened many, I stalk. That's for sure. When the humans were first discovered and introduced to the galaxy at large, they were excited. They were always smiling, hopeful, and optimistic for their futures. They were so happy to find out that they finally had advanced enough to be accepted into the galaxy. I remember seeing screen grabs of the Dolan ambassador laughing, literally laughing in the face of the human representatives. Advanced enough, he roared with mirth. Who cares if you're advanced enough? Your planet is rich in resources. That's all the advancement we need. The smile on the human faces seemed to crumble at that, though they valiantly tried to remain optimistic of the situation. Until the Dolans took untold millions of tons of resources and refused to pay. Now you know to get payment up front... That knowledge is the only payment you'll get from us. And the Sleen Empire. They invited a hundred thousand humans to come live on their planet, only to slap them in chains when they arrived and made slaves of them. When the humans, enraged at the treatment of their people, demanded the release of those captured, the Sleen Empire said, Very well, we are sending a hundred thousand to you now and then sent a hundred thousand viridium-tipped missiles into human cities and settlements. It was after that when the Jandus Collective offered them medicine to treat the viridium burns. At first, the medicine was a godsend, curing the burns and disease caused by the missiles. 
But then, every human that had gotten treatment died in horrible agony. The Collective had used the humans as test subjects for biological weapons. The humans, after this, cut off all contact with the galaxy at large. They'd become a laughingstock, and were the butt of many a joke and insult. They refused any shift, left any hail unanswered, and never left their own area of space. But two years later, they opened channels to the galaxy and broadcast this message. We welcomed you with open arms. Some of you laughed at us, and that is fine. But if you betrayed us, this is the only warning you will get. Run! Oh, how they all laughed. These stupid humans, what could they do? The galaxy did not laugh for long. It seems that even though humans were the punchline of many a joke, they were still able to study the weapons and craft of their enemies and improve on these designs. The first sign that the humans might be a force to be reckoned with was when all seven of the Sleen Empire's core worlds were bombarded with tens of thousands of new type of Iridian missiles, ones which seemed to react violently with the atmosphere itself, making the air unbreathable and saw people immolated where they stood, even a thousand miles from where the missile hit. Most of the galaxy thought this a fluke, that the humans blindly stumbled into creating a weapon that worked better than they planned. But when the Jandus collection began to fall sick, world after world of the collective members dying in agony from a disease so potent, it caused necrosis of the skin to where body parts started to fall off the infected. The galaxy realized that this was indeed the human, exacting revenge. Medical teams from many worlds studied the virus, and it seemed the Jandus Collective's own disease that they used on the humans was mutated with some disease called leprosy, and the result was disastrous. The galaxy at large called on the humans, begged them to stop their warfare, and none so loud as the Dolans. They apologized to the humans, offered to pay back what they owed double. They waited in fear for the human response, and when over a dozen large ships appeared in the skies above the Dolan homeworld, seemingly out of nowhere, the Dolans were heard from no more. Their world was laid waste. And the humans sent out one last message over 600 years ago. Do not come to human space. Do not approach us. Do not contact us. Do not even mention us. If any ship approaches, be it vessel of peace or war, it will be destroyed. There will be no further warning. The galaxy's races, of course, assembled for war. How dare these upstart race order them what to do? So thousands of ships flew into human space to wage war. Not one of them returned. Not one. Over the centuries, envoys had been sent to human space, all with the same result. The ship's engines would cut out for no reason, then the ship would be destroyed. The humans were right, I repeated. Everyone else in the galaxy sit there and watch us die, slowly, at the hands of the Threen. They do nothing. We would all be better off if we were just left alone. We would be better off if we were like the humans. And I stopped. My wingmates scoffed. But an idea had been planted in my head. 
A wild, crazy idea. But no more crazy than flying off undergunned to fight a more powerful opponent. Tomorrow, I would fly to human space. Tomorrow, I would do what no one dared to do for centuries. Tomorrow, I would ask for help from the most dangerous race in the galaxy. It is no small wonder that when I flew off away from battle, my superiors thought me a coward. They threatened me with death if I did not return with their ship, but I was already light years from their grasp. My ship was after all the fastest single-manned vehicle my race possessed. Even as fast as it was, it took weeks for me to get near what we thought was the human-controlled space. I was nervous, scared that at any second that I would be vaporized by some unseen hand, but still my ship flew on. Days later, and my stalls of food were dwindling, my engines cut out for no apparent reason. My hands flew on the controls, but all systems reported that they were working properly. Perplexed, I wondered why, if everything was working. I sat dead in space, and then it hit me. Cubans. Quickly, I activated my communicator and broadcast on all frequencies. Greetings, I am Pilot Javine of the third response unit of the Belkan race. Silence was the only reply. I come to beseech your aid. The Threen Empire is decimating our people and our worlds, and the galaxy at large sits there, waiting like vultures to pick up bones, my people and my culture. Silence. Once your race battled with the apathy and betrayal of the races of this wretched galaxy, you suffered once, as we do now, from the disdain and callousness of races that pledge to help, yet do nothing. From races that swear to defend, but instead betray. Javine checked his broadcaster. Everything seemed to be working. He continued. We were discovered as a world a century after you had left the galaxy. We never had the opportunity to know you, but I know of you. And the old races speak your names in fear, as the only race to stand up to the evil that permeates the very core of the expanse of space. Silence. I know why you turned your back on the other races. I understand as my race is betrayed just as yours was. Silence. But you can help us bring an end to the way things are. How can you sit there on the sidelines, doing nothing while peaceful worlds burn? Silence. How can you be so cruel? Silence. Angry, Javine yelled into his communicator. How can you be so cowardly? He sat in fear, waiting for his death, when without warning his engines came back online. Confused, he looked around, wondering what was happening when across his communicator, a single word scrolled from right to left. Run. Slamming his fist down in anger and frustration, Javim roared into his communicator. Run! Run! My people think I ran from a fight with the Threen. Now you tell me to run like the other races. You want to know the truth? You are the worst of them all. I'll show you, Run. And with that, Javin ran to the engine room, ripped out his sidearm from his holster, and fired into the FTL engine that was his only way home. His only escape. 
his last hope. He fired until his weapon was dry and the engine was little more than a pile of smoking slag metal. Breathing heavily, he roared back into the communicator. Cowards! You will not shoot me in the back. Look me in the eye, Stocks, if you're gonna kill me and be done with it. Silence. In a fit of rage, Javine smashed his empty sidearm into the communicator again and again. Now it truly would be silent. Two days later, Javine's ship still floated dead in space. He sat on the floor, hugging his legs to his chest and still bristling with anger. He regretted his rash decision and wished that he'd died fighting the Threen. At least that death would have meaning. It was then he felt a strange vibration. He looked up and around, trying to discern its source, when a strange voice, a human voice, but speaking perfect Vulcan, seemed to fill his head, emanating from all around him. Pilot Javine of the Balkan Empire, I extend you greetings, the voice said. We have heard your request for aid in your conflict, and having spent the last days researching your plight, we, the Terran Empire, gladly offer you our unconditional assistance. Javine sat stunned, mouth agape. Please stand by for your vessel to be taken aboard the UES Quebec for repairs. Th th thank you, Javine said timidly, unsure if the humans would be able to hear him. Your thanks are not necessary, came the reply. In fact, we owe you an apology. We have distrusted the other races for so long that we forgot what it was like to be facing them alone. You reminded us of something we long thought was impossible. What is that? Jabin asked timidly. That there can be other races out there. Brave, defiant, good of heart races. They remind us of us. And with that, the words stopped, and Javine saw from his viewport six large angular vessels shimmer and appear from seemingly nowhere, huge and bristling with weapons. Help us here. The humans had answered. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 899 Priceless, written by Drich Greich. I'm sorry, he repeated, but the numbers are clear. Average time to recover a single individual in this quadrant, plus individual costs. It's simply not within accepted range. The representative reached out an arm and gripped her shoulder in what was obviously meant to be a comforting gesture. It did not work. The poor liar he was addressing, a brood keeper of substantial size and even more substantial volume, returned to her wailing as soon as her words were translated. The rest of the crew averted their eyes uncomfortably, though whether the respect of her mourning or out of general discomfort was not clear. The broodkeeper had lost one of her charges below, when the team had allowed the younglings out into the habitable surface for a rare treat, real, natural air. The problem was, it had taken next to no time for the youngling to disappear, according to his remaining companion, who had been so embarrassed at losing his friend that he hadn't reported him missing to the broodkeeper until several hours later, and even then only once she attempted to check them back onto the ship. Now, Representative Thex had been unenviable task of informing her that the ship's onboard calculation placed the cost and risks of recovery at unacceptable levels. 
Simply put, it was neither financially viable nor worth the risk involved. To send the ship's complement of Senate soldiers out to the surface. The ship had run some sort of strange, nearly incomprehensible calculation based on available data and found that the odds of recovery were low. The total uh, man-hours required would be financially problematic, and the brood creeper's status on the vessel was insufficient to justify the cost. Simply put, in an empirical, measurable sense, the child's recovery wasn't worth the effort based on the ship's available parameters. After several more awkward minutes of waiting, and three more increasingly uncomfortable attempts to calm her, Representative Thex called for a squad of Senate medics to fetch her from his office. Quickly, a squad showed up with a normal complement of members. One Pauli, as the ship was primarily made of Pauli, one Thrix, as they were noted as to be renowned xenobiologists, one Thruban, as their species had incredibly useful talent for being able to identify most toxins and chemical irritants to a molecular level based on taste, while they themselves were nearly invulnerable to most chemical irritants and poisons. And a human, for their talents in handling complex social interactions between the other races. The problem was... They didn't remove the brewkeeper from the room, as expected, nor tranquilize her to quiet her keening, but rather began to speak to her. The representative, currently the highest-ranking officer in the Senate on board, quickly lost patience and interrupted the team. If you don't mind, would you please get on with it? he demanded. The Pauli medic disengaged from the group and pulled him aside, while the rest of the squad continued to ignore him. Pardon, sir. But my colleagues are simply fulfilling their duty. I know this is an inconvenience, sir, but it is vitally important that we follow established protocols when dealing with the... Annoyed, the sex interrupted the medic. Yes, yes, protocols, uh, but I don't see why you need to keep her in here. For all of this nonsense, can't you take her? Well, at least take her into the corridor. And then we, we can't begin our meeting again until she leaves. The medic gave him an odd look. Almost a sort of scowl, or look of disapproval. Thex assumed that it was a misunderstanding, as even the Pauli who joined the multi-species Senate organizations, such as the United Medical Corps or the Senate Military, would not stray so far as to forget basic Pauli etiquette. I was shocked when her words proved that she was, indeed, scowling at him. Pardon again, Representative, but our task is to protect those on the ship. And we are going to do so based on protocol that has been established. Whether or not you are inconvenienced. Without so much as a bow, she turned back to the rest of her squad and began conferring once more. After another minute had passed, the human medic trotted over to the flustered Dex and explained, Sorry, sir. I hate to be such an inconvenience, but uh, we're going to have to call a halt just for a minute. We need to keep the ship in orbit until we can check in with the colonel, if you don't mind. Thex attempted to respond, but it was cut off quickly with a very sincere sounding, very apologetic explanation of, It's a real problem for you, and I know it's a pain, but rules don't give me a lot of leeway here, you know. I mean, you know how much I'd love to let you take us out, but with Zora's trouble here... He paused and pointed back at the broodkeeper that Dex now realized must be named Zora. Well, rules dictate that we need to take this up with the highest-ranking member of the ship militarily. 
I know you're definitely gonna outrank him, sir. I know it, but, uh... Well, that's just the rules. Do you know what I mean, representative? She gave him a smile that was translated to him as charming, sincere, and apologetic. So he simply waved her on and began pacing again from side to side at the nose of the ship. The problem with the Senate, some species say, is that it was made up of so damned many species, each one demanding their own rules to be followed, each with their own understanding of morality and value. It's enough to drive a person crazy, which, incidentally, is how nearly the entire species of the Morogul died out, shortly after their entry into the Galactic Senate, some 1,500 soda cycles previously. To help avoid unnecessary conflict then, the Senate decided aeons ago that they would allow the United Military and Peacekeeping Forces of the Senate to be taken by any interested ships for nothing more than a promise not to misuse the authority that the cadre of soldiers might give them. Similarly, when the Thrubans and their ability to identify nearly any dangerous chemical were introduced to the Senate, they agreed that the Thruban would go as well. This continued in a similar fashion over the course of several millennia, even as recently as when the humans arrived. Newcomers to the Senate, and relatively minor as a species. Not particularly wise, intelligent, strong, or advanced relative to most other races. They were only introduced as a requisite ship's company when it was realized that their species seemed to have a uniquely good talent for diplomacy. Or bonding attributed to most function of their own social development as primates, and at least partly as a function of other unique ability to easily understand the body language of other species, a function of the domestication of many of Earth's animals during their societal development. This meant that every ship should have at least a fairly large squad of Senate soldiers available, a medical team, an emergency response team, and a diplomatic squad of their own species available for nothing more than being a species that was part of the Senate. It was, though often frustrating for captains whose jobs didn't require them to use any of these resources, a blessing for most people. The problem is, once a species joins the Senate, and especially if they show a particular talent, they have a tendency to make others in the Senate groups, whether militarily, medically, diplomatically, or otherwise associated, change. Thrubans made their teams more aware, teaching them to notice minor things that they otherwise might forget to even notice. Like the smell in the air on board, or the specific addictive tastes found in different chemicals. Althruians taught the rest of the Senate to appreciate how tightly social bonds can form as their species' natural empathetic projections made individuals more keenly aware of emotions of their companions. Humans, then, made the rest of the companions more aware of human's strange relativism, the idea that right and wrong might not be a calculable value, but are also dependent on context and setting. That was the problem that had arisen here with Representative Thick's decision. He and the computer on board agreed that the total man now was lost searching for a single child were too great, with only a 30-35% to 35% chance of successfully finding the child even with the help of all the soldiers on board being deployed. A 947,141 credit expected cost, which would be billed to the Senate itself for its peacekeeping costs. The estimated several thousand man-hours of labor expected. It was simply not worth finding the child. It wasn't a judgment of kindness, 
gentleness, or goodness, whatever that might be. It was just the evaluation of a value that was the best to the ship, and its Pauline representative was trying to make. But the Senate soldiers, including 13 races, of which a disproportionate 21% were human. With humans on every diplomatic and medical team too, that meant that there was a massively large proportion of humans influencing the social and moral ideologies found on the ship. And it had taken the human medic Jane O'Dell under 30 seconds to convince the rest of the medic squad to agree that they should ask the Senate soldier colonel, the highest ranking on board, to override the ship computer and representative Thex's decision. And it took even less time to convince the colonel himself when they reached him, with the weeping broodkeeper Zora in tow. He was a human himself who had integrated well with the other species and had been given his rank more for his ability to command loyalty than his ability to command armies. Upon hearing a missing child, he literally stood up and pressed the override switch that would send the ship a command to allow the Senate soldier deployment below. Representative Thex could not believe what he was seeing as the ship drifted slowly over the same patch of ground that they had initially dropped the broodlings off at. Using sensors and equipment designed for exploration and mining to simply search unspecified number of square miles for a single broodling. He was convinced there must have been some other unrelated emergency occurring when he saw the override sensor go off on his view screen. Until the colonel came rushing in to explain that they were dropping the entire complement of soldiers down to begin a search and rescue. Worse still, the colonel called an order for all local ships in the quadrant that were available, using a distress signal that Dex had honestly believed was reserved only for danger to the Senate representative, such as himself, or higher, and three more ships came, with one entire platoon of soldiers, for one child. Dex had demanded explanations, but the colonel had politely brushed him off, explaining that the Senate had rules allowing him this authority in the event that public safety of those on board was threatened. Dex had even explained, trying his best not to lose his temper or be impolite, that the safety of those on board was not threatened, that it was safety of one brutally, who might already have perished. It was illogical and wasteful and an absolute embarrassment to commit this many resources to save a single infant brutally, especially one so foolish as to wander off and get lost. The colonel had then used a language that Therix's translate was unable to exactly translate, but that seemed profoundly impolite. If he was understanding it correctly, and with that, they had set off. They were now on their second Earth Day of waiting as the soldiers combed the forest below. Some of the more nimble and even forest-adapted species, such as the snake-like Thrix, had joined the humans on the ground directly. Even some non-military poli on board, despite the impropriety, had joined the effort. And still, nothing. It was uncomfortable, guilty feeling that led Dex to realize he hoped that they did not find the child if only to prove the colonel that this was truly a wasted effort. But somehow, after 46 hours, they had found the child, covered in strange insect bites and badly in need of water and food. The broodling was found 11.4 miles away from their last known position, having wandered in fear as soon as they realized that they'd become lost. All told, 175,000 man-hours were used and nearly 4,000 searchers 
looking for nearly two Earth days. Lex's math showed that the child would not be likely to be able to work that many hours their entire life. Working by human years to make his point to the colonel, Lex explained that the child would need to work 24-7 for nearly 20 Earth years to make up for the amount of time that was lost in searching for it, or 88 human years worth of full-time employment. It was, calculably, a bad decision. It was, demonstratedly, a waste of finite resources that would result in nothing but a broodling that appeared to have poor judgment, more opportunities to waste the time and energy of others. The colonel didn't care. Zora, the broodkeeper, didn't care. When the colonel handed the control back to Thex and disabled the Senate override on the ship, Thex couldn't stop himself from making one more comment, knowing full well that it would be seen as disrespectful and rude. You know, he said, trying his hardest not to allow the venom of irritation into his tone. I'm gonna need to report this to your commanding officer when we reach the Senate space again. They're gonna know that you decided to waste untold resources for no reason beyond the foolish and emotional petulance of a human simpering illogical form of morality. The colonel, who had been retreating after officially turning control back over with a salute, turned back to face the representative. The squad of medics at his side as they too had finished making their full report on the missing broodling's well-being. I'm sorry, started the captain, showing the human tendency to approach even moments of hostility with at least a semblance of friendliness. I don't believe I heard you correctly, sir. Would you do me the favor and repeat yourself? Still annoyed, and now also rather irritated that the colonel was pretending to have misheard him to force him in repeating his rudeness, Thex crisply answered, I said that I will be reporting this waste of resources to the rest of the Senate, including the fact that you diverted us, not over logic, but as a result of your own illogical and overly emotional human ideals of morality. Quite the abuse of power, if you ask me. The colonel paused, and then turned to look at the other medics. He knew that they, at least, would agree with him, human or not. They were medics, and that meant that they were keenly aware of the value of life, whether of their species or not and whether it was logical to care or not. They looked back at him with stoic and perhaps slightly angry glances. He took this as support and strode back up to the representative thanks. Report all you want, representative. I'm confident my actions will hold up against scrutiny, regardless of whether you think my simpering morality was the cause of the actions or not. Thex refused to be intimidated and leered back. Are you honestly trying to defend yourself? Claim this was all justified. Now, after this much time's been wasted. The colonel nodded coldly. The characteristic human smile and friendliness was gone. Yes, representative. I am claiming that this was justified. Thex scoffed and then made sure to repeat the gesture again when he saw that the colonel must not have seen it well enough for his auto-translator to translate the meaning of the gesture. This is a waste of time and resources. This was costly for no real gain. What do you humans believe a single life is worth, Colonel, if you will expand this much on an unproven child? 
the Colonel glared for a moment before responding. The life of a child, Representative. I don't know about you, but on my planet, we don't have a damned number. But if we had to put a value to it, we would call it priceless. And with another stiff, grudging salute, he and the medical team strode towards the exit. Only the poor eye medic, perhaps in an effort to show her fellowship with his alien companions, or perhaps in response to the shame he felt from what his own kind was saying, looked back at the thanks and made a gesture, which, while translated imperfectly, seemed to be saying, Go feck yourself, using the human hand gesture. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 900. Story number one. Look for the Helpers, written by Historical Chicken. I've never seen Terran, though the stories relayed to me by friends of friends and common bargoers had filled my mind with wild fantasies of an aggressive race. I heard everything from they're twice the size of a Zalarian to they have as many arms as a Noblerite, though no story stuck with me more than the one told to us by a Feyun woman. I'm not much of a tale-slinger, but I'll try and recall it as best of my knowledge. I'm sure I don't have to tell you about the civil war still raging in the Feyun, but on the chance that it slipped your mind, let me elaborate. In short, the world leader of the Feyun was assassinated, and the resulting void of power created the perfect storm for three factions to stake their claims. It's been about a hundred galactic years since it started, and yet it rages on as if the body of that leader was still warm. Yeah, I digress. Back to the story. The Faryan are still fighting their ancient war and Sara. The Faryan woman saw enough tragedy for a thousand lifetimes. Her home engulfed in flames and family hobbling, but alive. Like many Faryan, they wandered the streets hungry and helpless. They had just survived the most devastating assault on the capital yet and had only their wounds and defeated spirits as a prize. She also looked so melancholy when she finished that part of the story. But as she continued, her eyes would shine with a fierce emotion, and though I cannot capture such a strong feeling, I felt that you must know about it. What she described to us was like a scene out of an ancient holy box. Sleek grey starships, hundreds of them, maybe thousands, descended upon the capital. All of them bore the insignia of the very one Solra had tattooed on her hand, of the United Earth Defense Force. She claims they landed all over the city, and though the military vessels were indeed full of particle weapons and energized armor plates, so too were they filled with volunteers. Like angels in a stark white uniform, Terrans, or humans as they preferred to be called, poured from their ships. Some were in full armor protecting others, while the rest had armfuls of medical supplies, food, and water, and portable shelters. Selra could never describe what followed in much detail. Her heart so full of gratitude and a mind so weary from survival. It was because of these humans that Selra and her family and the families of many other Feyans survived. I suspect that she is right. After a few days of recovery, Selra finally walked up the nerve to speak to the human doctor looking after her. 
With tears welling up in her eyes, she thanked the human profusely, and with a small, childish voice asked, Why are you here? What have we done to deserve this? The human simply smiled and knelt down before Sora. She spoke soft and sweet. There was once a man, a few hundred earth years ago, who said that when he saw scary things, his mother told him to look for the helpers. She paused to wipe away the tears slipping from the eyes of the child. Well, I've been looking for the helpers down here, and since I didn't see any, I thought I'd become one. It was always then that Saura ended her story, too overcome with emotion to continue. I found out from my own research that the Terrans ignored the warnings of the Galactic Council to intervene on a planet's struggle. Still, they fight, but now that the Terrans have joined the fray, the rightful government is on the brink of victory. Saura is now an adult, and like the human who treated her wounds on Feyun, she too has become a helper. Mending wounds on the same battlefield that she was forged on. This was just the first story I've been told of the compassion and generosity of the Terrans. I've since heard many, many more stories. Still, I have not seen one, but I've heard enough to know that they are not the harbingers of destruction many would accuse them of being. They are instead the catalyst of hope and a proponent of peace. End. Of story. Story number two. Penance written by Wall of Shadows. The man sat at the desk with a horrified expression as the twelve-armed insectoid walked up. Cause of death, he asked. No shit. There I was, minding my own business, drinking at the Bladed Cronk Tavern. When this arsehole comes waltzing in, offering drinks for everybody. Now maybe I should have known better than to go in a monkey bar, but... The man broke in. They're not actually monkeys, you know. Yeah, yeah, whatever, Dad. Primate, ape, subspecies, whatever. Anyways, I was always saying, this asshole walks in and buys a round for the house. Just hit platinum on some asteroid mine that he had a claim on. Something called a Bloody Mary. Yeah, I thought that it was a blood and alcohol, like any civilized creature would. How the hell am I supposed to know that it's filled with chemical weapons? Nicotides, capsaicin, and isothicocyanate. In one cocktail, crazy-ass monkeys. The man sighed as he filled out the form. Okay, first door on your right. Pick up the robe on your way through. Guy at the gate will show you where to bunk. Calls of death... The millipede-like alien stuttered as he spoke. We, we, we were on a routine trade mission. We, we had a cargo of rare furs that we, we traded for crates of carbon and sulfur. Uh, our engineers had taken on a human apprentice. He, he was a great asset on our trip out. As, as he spent the entire time optimizing the system, we didn't even know we weren't running at peak proficiency. It, it was on the return trip that he became a problem. Without anything to repair, you suffered from a disease called uh, boredom. Apparently, it spent the first few weeks collecting his liquid waste and distilling it down to a nitrate components. He then created some chemical explosives from his own bodily waste. The last thing I remember is the human asking me to hold his can of alcohol. 
The man rubbed the bridge of his nose in frustration. First door on your right. Pick up a robe on your way through. Guy at the gate will show you where to bunk. Cause of death. Piracy, said the ravenous looking monstrosity seated across the table. Look, sighed the old man in white robes. Piracy is not a cause of death. It is when you board a human ship. Goddamn things didn't even have any proper weapons. Me and my buddies figured they were easy pickings. Come to find out they can improvise weapons from anything. Wrenches, hammers, writing implements. One lady beat my co-pilot to death with a book. I bought it when the cabin boy tackled me into the airlock and spaced the both of us. Right, uh, watch the blasphemy if you don't mind. First door on your right, pick up the robe on your way through. Guy at the gate will show you where to bunk. Cause of death. My government launched a nuclear strike against the human colony. Humans dropped a planetoid on my home world, said the small, radially symmetrical creature. As it fell, the astronomers noted that all along its equator was several billion credits worth of sodium vapor lighting, spelling out the human words, From hell's heart, I stab thee. The man behind the desk blinked in stunned belief. Come again, he said. Oh, sure, there's about a billion more nine behind me. The old bearded man looked impatiently at his subordinate. Look, Pete, this is enough. I've been doing your damn job for a millennia, and I've got crap to do. I'm tired of hearing humans this, humans that. Get your ass back into the receiving desk. A tall, pale stick of a man frowned. Look, boss, I'll go back to the desk anytime you say. It's your show here, but uh, you asked me to set you a penance, and that's damn well what I did. J.H.V.H. sighed. St. Peter was right. After all, he was the one who created these humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 901 The Study of Humanity Written by Inferior Venom I am often asked by my friends, family, journalists, and even my fellow xenoanthropologists why, of all the races to study, I choose to focus so much of my time on humanity. Some ask why I would waste my time on such a young species which has contributed almost nothing to core galactic politics or culture. Others ask why I would risk my personal safety deliberately associating with one of the most savage and widely feared races ever encountered. And yet others are genuinely curious as to why I choose to study such a wonderful and vibrant species. In truth, the disparity in the tone of these questions is itself part of the reason why I chose humanity. For just about every race in the galaxy, there is some event in the history some aspect of their culture that you can point to as a golden example of the species. It may not have to display every aspect of the race, but it neatly summarizes the key features of their role in the galactic community, providing insight into how best to interact with them from a political standpoint, or how best to engage with them from a military one, or how best to approach an economic issue with the merchants. Take the Hoitzakul Collective's arrival in the world of Krakavar IV. The wolf was split between two sentient species, both having evolved separately on each of the world's hemispheres, both on the brink of developing Tier Three civilizations. 
and as a result, resources were beginning to become sparse. War had raged between the two races for centuries when the Hitsuko arrived in system, originally planning to colonize it. Upon seeing the political state of the two pre-space age races, they immediately began meeting with leaders of both species. With their natural empathic abilities, they were able to make a tailored suggestions that appeased both parties. They provided the means to boost their floundering economies and emphasize the need to share. Within five solar cycles, not only had they ended a centuries-long war, but the two races were now firm allies, working together to make the best use of the world's resources to benefit them all. Even after the Hoitzikol departed, the two races continued to advance exponentially and reached a tier four civilization and developed space travel within 100 cycles, faster than any other race in recorded history. This example is often used to highlight the incredible diplomatic skill of the collective and why they sit at the head of the United Galactic Republic. Another textbook example is that of Throngar's role in ending the Great Zilarixic Plague. Everyone who knows anything about galactic history knows how close many of our races came to extinction when that horror crept into the outer rim. The Zilarixic hives have always been a terrible danger, and the reason much of that region remains uninhabited. The massive organisms that act as the hive ships prowl the regional space looking for any world rich in organic matter. When they find one, the birth countless feeder organisms to descend on the world and devour it all. When there is nothing left to devour, they move on, traveling to the next system and leaving nothing living behind. As terrible as they are, they were never a truly galactic threat. Lacking any kind of FTL or hyperspace technology in their entirely organic fleets, the vast majority of resources acquired from the latest feeding were expended by the hive in its sometimes century-long journeys between star systems, leaving them just barely strong enough to consume what they found there. Overly successful hives inevitably burn themselves out as they consume all the available biomatter around and starve themselves that all changed, however, when the Kyla began colonizing that regional space. Breeding rapidly, they were able to fill a dozen systems with trillions of inhabitants before the hive found them. Unprepared for the attack, the first colony world fell, and the immense amount of bioresources the former inhabitants provided gave the hive more than enough power to rapidly consume the next two systems before the Kyla would intercept them with their colonial defense fleet. As powerful as the fleet was, it was no match for the now engorged hive, and every single crew member of the fleet was consumed, fueling the hive even further. By the time the Kylar were able to evacuate their remaining colonies, it was too late. The hive had amassed enough resources to cross the great natural gulf that exists between that sector and the galaxy at large. With such rich, new feeding grounds, the hive grew and spread exponentially, cutting a bloody swath towards the galactic center. Entire subsectors of the empire were lost, countless souls were devoured, and a few races were even lost to their ancestral homeworlds. Entire armies and armadas were arrayed against them, but the hive's innumerable hordes were too many and too great to stop. It seemed that the galaxy was doomed. Then... 
the hives encountered the Throngagar. No race before or since has so reveled in war. Considered little more than barbarians by many, the Throngagar's entire culture has always focused around the honor and glory of combat. Even their religion reaches the eternal rewards for death in combat. Since entering the galactic stage, the Throngagar had been forced to keep their bloodthirsty natures in check by economic sanctions and embargoes by their neighboring empires. Warning that unprovoked attacks would result in the loss of vast majority of their economic income, and the slow, undignified death of their fledgling empire. But when the Zillazek attacked, at last the Throngagar could let their true natures re. Here, at last, was a conflict that was mercifully simple. There were no political games, no negotiations or treaties, no rules of war. There was only the battle for survival, which only one could win. The Throngagar struck like a meteor, sending the hive reading from their system. Time after time, the hive tried to pass through the Throngagar-controlled space, and time after time, they were repelled. The Throngagar held the hive at bay for so long that the other races were finally able to recuperate and muster a combined fleet strong enough to finally push the Zillazak back. Finally, the plague was ended and the hive was forced back to the black pit it crawled out of. To this day, the Throngagar continue their campaign against the Zillazak, hunting them throughout the sector and reveling in the glory of their own personal, never-ending war. This landmark of galactic history shows above all else why the Throngagar are respected as the mightiest warriors in the galaxy. The examples are as numerous and as varied as the races of the galaxy themselves. From time to time, the mercantile cunning of the Oxitex allowed them to trick two empires out of half of their colonized worlds, to the brutal savagery of the Vorkalon's massacre and Tyon Prime. The nature of every race can be summarized neatly if you know your history. But uh, what best summarizes humanity? This is a question that drew me to study them over and any other race, and one that I've struggled to answer for years. The Quaxar would tell you that they are a terrifyingly vengeful race, as highlighted by their response to the destruction of one of their colony transport fleets. Twelve million humans died in that attack. And so, humanity responded by obliterating a dozen of the Quexar's occupied worlds, even after the Quexar sued for peace after the third attack. The Throngagar will tell you humanity is deceitful, dishonorable race, as shown by the decisive battle of only conflict between two empires. When the Throngagar's fleet arrived in a system housing the humans' primary manufacturing facilities for the region, they found it suspiciously empty of ships. It was only when they drew close enough to the system center that the humans showed their hand. A stealth cruiser fired a volley of specialized fusion bombs into the system's star, generating a massive series of solar flares that crippled the Throngagar's fleet. They were helpless as the human fleet, which had been hiding in the system's outer asteroid field, descended upon them. And then there's what the Hoitzikals say and the main reason humanity were welcomed into the galactic community. According to them, humans are the most honorable and noble of races. Only a few decades after first contact, 
when humanity was still considered insignificant to the galaxy. A hoitical civilian fleet came under attack by pirates. They sent out a distress call, but the only fleet close enough to aid them was the human fleet, and a merchant one at that. Despite being outnumbered, outgunned, and outclassed, the humans rushed to their aid, fighting off the pirates and even shielding the civilian craft with their own ship's hulls while they escaped. The merchant fleet was completely destroyed, and all hands lost. But the Hoitzikul fleet was able to reach safety and eventually send a Republic fleet to the region to bring the pirates to justice. So we have a race that is simultaneously, ruthlessly vengeful, determined to win at any cost, and compassionate enough to lay down their lives for others. And there are countless more stories, each displaying humanity in a different light. And each of them, after investigation demanded by skepticism, appears to be accurate and true. Some will say that this only proves the defining trait of humanity is that they are multifaceted, and as such, untrustworthy. I, however, have a different theory. The defining feature of humanity is that they defy being defined. Honorable, vengeful, merciless, heroic, cunning, compassionate. Every human, and humanity as a whole, is all of these things and more, and yet none of them at the same time. No other race has ever displayed such a variety of character not just within the species as a whole, but within each individual. So when I am asked why I study humanity over any other race, I simply tell them, because for me, there is no other race worth studying. Varaga Jessico, leading xeno-anthropologist expert on humanity, upon being asked why study humanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 902 Follow it, written by Dominic Dugtrio I suppose really we should have expected it. We were a frontier planet. Just because the Alliance were fighting hard in the other systems didn't mean that they wouldn't come along and try and take this world. It probably made a better target anyway. The collective ignorance of the collective's leadership had decided that since the threats was low, they could designate Dryth as a research planet, nominally specializing in biology. I guess that's why they brought it here. But the Alliance came anyway, started shunning the collective crap out of the collective military installations. Not really targeting any residential areas, but not too fussed if a couple of buildings went boom in the wrong sector. There were a bunch of us in the basement of our resbok. Me, two other Dilwa, four Avex, a bonded pair, and three Falchua. One of the Avex, Rapal, was a camera operator for the system news station, and by complete chance, had brought back his new state-of-the-art camera, Com Headset, to show it off to all of us the day of the attack. And one of the Falchua was a retired communications officer, who managed to tap into the old Com line on the headset. Those were our first strokes of luck, and by the fall, we did need some luck. We were squashed into what must have been the smallest basement in the city. No proper food, no proper sleeping space, and nowhere to clean ourselves. The only reason I didn't go insane was that we were all talking about it. One mother Avex had a partner working in the city's xenobiology lab, and he was telling us that they had found a new sapient species, and one of them was here. 
in his partner's research building. We were all thinking about what it would look like. Would it have wings like Avex, but actually be able to fly rather than glide? Would it be intelligent? Was it a social creature? All this was tinged with sadness as we decided that probably the building had been destroyed. The creature along with it. Anyway, after a couple of uncomfortable nights, we heard a message on the old comm line that the Alliance hadn't thought to jam. All civilians were to head to their nearest hospital and wait for rescue there. I know it probably wasn't the best idea, but they had to pretend that they were doing something for us civilians, right? Even if they were just holding us all together to make us easier to kill. My flatmate and Avex called Trilla decided it was because they wanted to use the civilians as bargaining chips in a surrender agreement. You know, give the Alliance slaves and then the collective leaders would be able to escape. But we couldn't wait in the basement forever, and hope springs eternal. Maybe they did actually want to rescue us. So we crept out into the street, and were immediately met with an all-encompassing grey fog. At least five buildings on this avenue had been destroyed, and the dust had spread thick and wide. We could hear muffled tock-tock-tock noises, which could mean only one thing. They'd sent socks for the ground offensive. I'd only heard of socks before. You know, sharp claws, sharp teeth, angry as a solar flare. With their rail rifles and vacuum-sealed head and body armor, they were close to the evil one's demons as you could ever find. We had one helmet between us, and that was the camera helmet Rapel was wearing. He was recording the whole thing. You've seen a bit of it, oh, I'm sure. Sure as sure can be. The only good thing about the sock that I've since found out is that they loved their hospitals, and luckily, that transferred to every hospital from every species they met. There was a general rule that if a banner came under attack, one of the first actions the Collective would take would be to send the Alliance a list of locations for every hospital on the planet, and the Sark wouldn't set claw or nor jaw inside. Anything else, anywhere else, was a live target, and it didn't matter how close you were to the hospital, a footstep or a city. You weren't in the hospital, you were fair game. The talks were coming from the direction we weren't headed, which was relieving, but one patrol means more. And with ten in a patrol, if we got spotted, we were all dead. But it wasn't a sock that killed the first of us. Trella did a head count at first corner, and we were a falsho down. The two of us lumped back, quick and silent as we could be. The retired comms officer was face down in a pile of rubble, and it didn't take a genius to see why. The dust had caked his respiratory system, and obviously his valves weren't as good as they once were. Dust, a lack of air, and the fear had probably all added together to stop all of his hearts. We shook our heads as we returned to the group, and the Falsher hooted in grief note in respect, the lattice of breathing tubes in their heads pulsating mournfully. The hospital had seemed close on the maps back in the basement, but above ground it might as well have been on another galaxy. We crept along the side of the blasted buildings, past storefronts littered with bodies, and avoided a small collective military checkpoint that had been taken with extreme prejudice. From the other end of the roadway, we could see the hanging Dilwa bodies, needle lasers still strapped to their bodies, more arms splayed out in a gruesome mockery of our traditional funeral rites. We lost another of our group along the way, 
One of the Dilwa was standing too close to a building when it was destroyed by artillery, and she was either buried by the debris or outright disintegrated by the explosion. Trilla survived by sheer chance. The vehicle he was walking next to at the time, catching a large piece of debris that would have smashed him flat. Instead, the vehicle slammed into him and he broke three of his wings and damaged one of his legs, which, whilst heavily unpleasant, wasn't enough to stop him from limping across the city, swearing all the while. It took us most of the day to get to the hospital, creeping through the streets and fallen buildings alike, second-guessing every turn we had to make and every sound that we heard. The second sun was getting close to touching the horizon, and through the clearing fog we could see the hospital's flashing tower. How had we made it? We asked ourselves. How had we? Office drones and unfit layabouts managed to sneak across the sectors of the city and make it to safety. You wouldn't believe how happy we were, completely forgetting that we weren't there yet. That it could all go wrong and we could still all die. Even if we were to be kept as slaves, surely that was better than dying. So, there we went, bounding down the street towards the tower that was clear as light at the end of the avenue. I was with the female bonded and one avex. Her name was Paula, or something. We were all spread out in a line, laughing and joking, not being quiet, not being safe, picking through a series of down-res buildings that were smashed all along the avenue. When... Pilar's head exploded. I dropped to the floor instantly and I saw Falsho and Trella hit the ground as well, all of us screaming at the others to get to cover. The other Dilwa and Avex dived down as well, but the female bonded wasn't so lucky, with a bolt hitting her midsection and ripping her off the center arm, and she fell to the ground, screaming, and obviously the male bonded's arm came off as well. So between the pair of them, they were making enough noise to draw every fecking patrol in half the city. Where are they? Trilla signed to me, using the collective standard sign language that all youths learned in school. No idea. They must have heard the broadcast, I signed back. Waiting here for any stragglers and collecting some glory, I continued, my face displaying how much glory I thought they'd be collecting from killing us. Several holes appeared in the wall I was taking cover behind. One of the Falsho flinched as another passed close enough to her face that it would have knocked a spoon out of her mouth. We were so close, so close, and these glorious warriors had camped here, waiting for civilians. Rebel was looking through the hole in his wall, trying to see where exactly the shots were coming from. As the bonded screams grew louder and louder, I was this close to just pushing her out of the cover and letting them kill her. Then maybe we could die in silence. Trella was trying to organize us. If we can get to the side of the avenue, we can make it through the buildings. Go a different way around. They had probably planted bombs, signed one of the Falsho, keeping his hands and body as close to the floor as he could. I clapped my hands together in frustration. So close! but no chance. Talk, 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 talk. As I watched, the bonded third leg fell off, and I guessed her partner had been caught by another bolt. Their screaming redoubled, and Rapal jerked away from his spotting hole, narrowly dodging another cluster of shots. They're getting closer, he warned, 
Ten paces. What are we going to do? Asked Wah the Dalwa, rather unhelpfully. Talk, 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 talk. Maybe it was my imagination, but were there less shots than before? Trella asked the same thing, and I nodded slowly, trying to count. Another bolt burst through her cover and hit the bonded in the head, and I was guiltily relieved that the screaming instantly stopped. Rapal risked another quick glance through the hole. There are only seven of them now, he signed slowly, glancing through again. Two of them are looking at the other. I held for a moment, then risked a glance around my wall. Five Sark were quickly turning around, running full cover to protect their rear, and without stopping to think how stupid I was, I dashed over to Rapal. He was a charged sniper shot, he whispered to me as I tumbled to the ground next to him. The two looking behind them both got hit in one shot, clean through their bodies. It slowly dawned on me what he meant. It was a Sark who shot them. Someone with their guns. Talk, 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 Rubel and I stole another look in time to see the sock topple over in its cover, a fist-sized hole punched clean through its upper body, and a spray of black blood coating the rubble behind it. The socks were no longer paying us any attention, and all of us stood to watch as they continued firing at random. Talk, 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 thwomp! That did it for the sock as another one slid down, half his head removed. The final two dropped their guns and rushed towards where the shooter must have been firing from. No species could handle unarmed combat against the sock. Their claws could shred armor in only two or three blows. I could hear the other Dalwa praying to the fall for our savior, and I had half the mind to join despite the fact that I hadn't been to a chorus since I was a child. As I watched the sock speed up, Vaulting over vehicles and ignoring their own dead, as what must have been stimulants, flowed through their system. Tuck, 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 tuck. The first one was hit and he straddled the low vehicle, slumping across it with all three bolts smashing through the upper body and neck, leaving a stripe of black over the dusty yellow. The second had his left leg blown clean off below the knee and fell to the ground. Easy prey for another bolt to strike his head. We survivors moved together as one, scarcely believing what we'd just seen. What manner of person would be able to steal a Sark weapon and then single-handedly eliminate an entire patrol? This is part of the recording you will have seen. I absolutely guarantee it. Only a short clip, perhaps ten heartbeats at most, gave a better reputation to a new species than if we'd found one that had invented FDL travel with sticks and stones. A pale figure emerged from a building, holding a rail rifle in one hand. They didn't seem to be wearing clothes on the upper body, showing a solid mass of white-pink flesh, with what must have been muscles rippling along their two arms. Their two legs were covered in semi-armored black cloth, looked to have been taken from a sock. The creature itself was similar in height to a sock, though perhaps a bit smaller. Yet the upper body was as thick as a sock wearing armor, they took another step up, and we could clearly see that it had a face mask on, a black and gold triangle covering most of the front and stretching out over the back of their head, protecting it from both dust and air, judging from the grills and pipes lacing the mask. But the big thing we noticed as it took another step towards, reaching out one of its arms, was that it was not alone. 
two young avocs, their arms curled around its upper body as they hung onto its back, whooped and chattered when they saw us, their wings flaring in unconcealed joy. Each youth must have weighed a quarter of a treller, but the figures seemed to notice them as much as if they were simply leaves off a tree, and I watched in mute surprise as the young falcher, less than half the figure's height, peeked up from behind its legs, hooting with happiness as she recognized they were falcher in our mists. The figure stood there, moving its arm between us and growing speed as we stood in a daze, and we were shocked even more when one of the avocs called out to us, its name is Ben, the right one said, wrapping his wings as he peered over the top of his head, and Ben wants you to follow it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 903 War Crimes, written by JDM5544 Sir, are you sure you want to go through with this hearing? asked my assistant. Yes, my boy, I am very sure of it. I replied while reviewing my notes. And that's the tenth time you've asked in the last hour. Ninth, and sorry, sir, he began. It's just that he began to trail on. What is it, boy? I've told you a thousand times. I take offense only to poorly thought out statements or questions, and you're not the type to open your mouth without thinking. I said sharper than I meant to. 942 times, sir, he quickly said. Damned both soths and taking all numbers literally. Ah, well, my own people were thought to not have a sense of humor, I thought to myself. It's just that, uh, well, uh, your predecessors didn't exactly leave it with credible position. He blurred, snapping me out by thoughts. Ah, I say simply. For example, the first high observer theorized that the human race saw artificial differences based on slight, almost non-existent genetic differences. He says, not hearing my response. I am well aware, I begin. And the second tried to destroy the humans, believing them to be greater threat than even the Magdorans. He continued, ignoring me. Yes, I know, but uh, I attempted to speak again. And I just think that I know, I finally yell, getting the attention of all of those around us. I am well aware of the stigma attached to my position. Just as I am aware of the controversy of the humans, I say sternly. I do not need you, of all people, to remind me of that. I'm sorry, sir, my assistant says. It is quite all right, I say, attempting to cut him off. But what worries me the most, sir, is you argued the most for their first classification, he says before I can continue. Um, I say. Yes, that's quite true, I did. I say, not betraying my own unease. Attention, the human reclassification hearing will begin shortly. Please enter the courtroom. Well now, it appears we have somewhere to be, I say with a note of finality. Um, yes it does, sir, my assistant replied. As we made our way into the massive courtroom, I began to explain what was going to happen to my assistant. We are going to go in there. The judges are all going to stroke their own egos by listing out all of their titles. After this, they are going to ask for a brief summary on the history of human observation posts since we discovered them, because they haven't read the written summary they received when I made my request. After that, they are going to ask the reason for the human's current classification. I think I'll leave all of that to you. To me, sir? But why? He asked rather nervously. Yes, 
I'm leaving it to you. As to why, it is simple. That is going to take a lot of talking, and I don't feel like talking that much, I say. After the reasoning, they'll ask what classification they should receive and why it should be changed. I will handle that, I continue on. Sir, if you don't mind me asking, what is your argument? My assistant asked nervously. Oh, nothing you need to concern yourself with, I say airily. You'll hear it at the same time as the judges. But sir, if I don't know what your argument is, how can I help it with my statements? He asked in confusion as we took our seats. Why do you need to know my arguments to make your statements? I ask, already knowing what his answer will be. Well, sir, it's just that the history of the humans doesn't exactly inspire a feeling of lowering the classification. He states clearly, not understanding my point. Well, you may have a point there, I concede. But nonetheless, just give them the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I say, quoting a human entertainment program that we had watched in the past. All rise for the honorable and wise judges of species character. Comes booming out of the speakers around us. As I stood there, the three judges walked in. There was a Versoth, a Tornok, and a Maisto, three of the five species on the council. As I predicted, the hearing started off with a load of ego stroking, naming all accomplishments of the three judges. I only half listened and began to formulate my argument. Sir, are you sure there isn't anything that you want me to leave out? My assistant asks as the ego stroking winds down. Yes, I'm sure. Tell them everything, I snap. Now is not the time for doubts. This hearing will now commence, comes the high-pitched voice of the Meister. The purpose of this hearing is the species known as humanity, currently classified Class Three Violent Species, formerly Class Five. Representing the Human Observation Outpost is the High Observer and his assistant. Please stand. As my assistant and I stand, the eyes of the judges finally come upon us. You are here to reclassify humanity, correct? Asked the Meister. That is correct, Your Wisdom, I reply evenly. Very well, please summarize the history of the human race since their discovery, he demands. With all due respect, Your Wisdom, my assistant will be the one to give the history of the species in question. I state, giving myself a small bit of control. Very well, says the judge, clearly bored with the proceedings. Ah, yes, humanity, my assistant starts off nervously. He clears his throat. Humanity was first discovered 26 cycles ago. The scout team gathered all available information at the time and returned to council space. When the council formed the first human observation force approximately a cycle later, we returned and saw the most advanced factions in humanity locked in a brutal war. They used terrible weapons and technology in the half cycle that followed. We began to study them in earnest. Millions died as a direct result of this war. We were rightly horrified, however, as the full cycle had not yet passed and we could not classify them. After this brutal war, however, we saw a seed of hope. They formed a union of several factions whose goal was to create lasting peace. As a result of this, the first rating of the human race was Class II, violent but showing promise. The most pessimistic amongst the team claimed that this was naivety. They he cited the lack of strong faction in the union, as well as the pending economic crash the computer saw coming 
as reasons the humans would not become peaceful. I am saddened to tell you that it was far, far worse than that. Approximately six cycles after we first began to study them, and just under five cycles after giving them that classification, they began another, even more brutal war. Some of the actions committed in this war horrified us to the core, but the worst action of all was the use of two atomic weapons before the use of atomic fission as an energy source. The gasp of horror from every mature being echoed in the courtroom. All other species had discovered nuclear fission as a source of energy first, and a weapon second. To do the opposite would be seen almost as a crime against nature. When this happened, an emergency reclassification was called, and in it, at the fervent argument of the current high observer, humans were reclassified as Class V violent species, violent, unreasonable, and almost animals. Their behavior after this brutal war appeared to confirm our suspicions. They were broadly divided up into two separate groups, each with their own ideology, with enough fission and fusion weapons to destroy the planet many times over. After four and a half cycles, they appeared to be on the brink of nuclear annihilation. By a miraculous series of diplomacy, they managed to avoid it. Approximately five cycles later, the second high observer began to believe humanity was the single most dangerous species in the galaxy, and inputted a bug into the satellites of one of the major factions, and caused them to believe that a nuclear attack from the rival was imminent. While this second high observer was clearly insane, his actions nonetheless would have had severe consequences on the human race, except they did not retaliate. We have since determined that they believed it to be a false alarm. Two cycles after this, one of the two major factions of the human planet collapsed, and after a cycle, the species was reclassified once more, this time as a Class III. Violent, but intelligent. It has been six and a quarter cycles since they were last reclassified. My assistant finished without a very strong conclusion. Those were always his weakness. The judges were clearly perturbed by the summary. Truth be told, all other life forms that had ever been classified as a Class V had later destroyed themselves, and none had ever shifted the classification around quite as much as humans had. I see, said the Meister. So you wish to reclassify humanity as a Class IV dangerous species than I, Observer? No, your wisdom, I said simply. I wish to reclassify them as a Class I dangerous species, violent but subdued. The shocked look on the faces of the three judges made the entire hearing worth it, in my opinion, even if it didn't go as planned. Class one? If we do that, then they will be forced to lift the FTL barriers we placed around them, exclaimed the Tornach. That is correct, your wisdom, I calmly state. Is it not you who argued the most strongly for class five seventeen and a half cycles ago? asked the Versoth. Yes, your wisdom, I did, I answered, just as calm as I was. Martin, all that is known caused you to change your views erratically inquired the Meister. Two things, your wisdom, one practical and one uh, philosophical, I began hesitantly. For the practical one, the human race is advancing at a rate approximately triple our own. At this rate, they'll have the technology to move at FTL speeds within five cycles. 
In addition, they have made computers that are almost on par with our own, and their medical technology is highly advanced for a species so young on a planet so harsh. I have no doubt that one day they will find a way past our barriers. And what can we do then? For at that time, they will be our technological superiors, I explain. But far more interesting, and in my own opinion far more important, is the concept they have. In order to truly understand it, you need to understand how utterly foreign it is to us. Your wisdoms, I ask, when your people are at war, when they capture combatants, what do they do to them, I ask. The Vorsoth answers first, saying, They are captured, of course, interrogated, through false if necessary, and used as labor afterwards, like every other species in the galaxy. I see your wisdom. Tell me what condition are these prisoners captured? That is to say, how well fed are they? Do they receive medical attention? I fire off a line of questions. They are given whatever scraps are left over after our own soldiers are finished. And of course not. Why would we waste the medicine on enemies? Answered the maestro. What is the point of these questions? He asked, angered. The point is simple, your wisdom. We, and all other known species in the galaxy, will engage in war, but never limit ourselves while doing it. We will use whatever weapons are available. We will do what will bring about victory the easiest. To do anything else is considered foolish. In this area, the humans are our clear superiors. They have a concept that takes at least a full cycle to understand. They will limit the way they wage war as to cause the least amount of damage to non-combatants. They will treat prisoners of war with respect and feed them adequately while also ensuring they are given medical attention. They often refuse to torture to gather information. They frown upon the use of chemical and biological weapons and have formed many agreements to limit their use. They may not always follow these limits, but the mere existence is proof that the humans are, in some ways, the most peace-hungry species in the galaxy. They call the way we treat our own enemies a simple title that does not exist in any other language. They call them uh, war crimes. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 904 Humans Don't Make Good Familiars Written by Dragfee Around me, all that could be heard was pencils fitting in multiple choice bubbles. Some determined, some lesser to get a good enough result to get into university of their owner's choice. I wasn't too stressed since the generic engineering course I wanted to enter wasn't particularly hard to get in, and I happened to not suck at maths. As it happened, we were ten minutes into the mid-year math exam, when under me, a bright geometric pattern circle appeared illuminating the room. Startled, I looked up, but no one seemed to notice, and the examination supervisor was staring daggers right at me. That was when everything went dark. Just as fast as it disappeared, the world came back into view again, except my view was full of little multicolored feathered bird nymphs staring at me. Surprised, I staggered back before I managed to balance myself and looked around the room I was in. The roof was just above my head, 
but assuming the twenty centimeter tall bird fairies, the only other living thing in the room, were what this room was designed for. It looked more like a sports hall. In fact, those were definitely some kind of gymnastics bars, and those were definitely for climbing, and those were no doubt for the goals of some kind of game. Turning my attention back to the nymphs, I could definitely recognize a couple amongst them which seemed to look a little larger, duller-colored, and dressed in what definitely made them look more, uh, professional. There was one standing in front of the crowd of younger nymphs, seemingly holding them back behind an invisible line, while behind the crowd stood three who definitely looked more, uh, apprehensive. My attention finally rested on the bright blue bird nymph facing me, and standing in front of all the others. It looked like he was fidgeting, peering up at me with upturned eyes. Puppetiao, it chirped, and as it did I felt encouragement, demand, and I should tell them who I am, and I guess they wouldn't know. Hey, I'm Jake, I said to the crowd at large, waving my hand. The group of brightly colored nymphs exploded into a cacophony of shushed chirps, which strongly reminded me of excited whispering when someone did something amazing, but that someone also was in your class, which meant whatever you did was going to be compared to it. The four who I was starting to suspect were teachers seemed to relax a little, but their gazes stayed wary. The little blue one at the front seemed to gain a little confidence, straightening its back while its face was getting what seemed to be just a little bit brighter. Perpetual it jumped, and once again, but this time I felt authority, Submission and, uh, I should come to my master. Wait, master? I cannot keep her waiting. What? Why can't I keep who waiting? How did I know? No, I must walk to her. What the feck? Why am I thinking? Go to her. Holy shit, this is mind control. Go to her now. Get out of my head. As I yelled, the crowd of birds shrank away, boring, completely silent. Even the four what seemed to be teachers looked stunned, but quickly recovered and readied what looked like intricately decorated wooden sticks. In the silence, the blue one repeated nervously, But Peru, nervousness, demand obedience, and I should know! This time the crowd scattered, chirping desperately as they flapped over each other. The three teachers at the back were prepared this time. Chirping in sync, the three gestured towards what looked like a jagged rock between them sitting on a trolley and motioned towards me, followed by the rock doing the same at a speed of a pegged handball. Out of pure instinct, my hand came forward, and around the room resounded a loud snap, followed by a louder, Fuck! The mayhem instantly came to a stop as the little feathered heads turned towards the source of the sound. I took the rock out of my right hand with my left and looked at the broken pencil that I must have been holding this whole time. It had snapped, and one of the two broken halves was protruding, a little into my palm. That hurt! I shouted, throwing the rock back in the general direction it came from. The stone flew and buried itself halfway into the floorboards right in front of one of the teacher nymphs, who staggered back and fell over with the, what in hindsight must have been utter horror, judging from the facial expression. The fourth teacher was shaking the little blue nymph and chirping some things while the rest of the students were softly stampering out of the room, bouncing against each other and the walls as they pushed open the large double doors. That's when I finally realized the gravity of what had probably happened. 
Get her up! I looked down at the little blue nymph chirping something again, but this time I didn't feel anything. Confused, I looked around and down at myself, only to see my legs disappearing. Holy crap! I exclaimed, as I quickly, my stomach, hands and chest faded into nothing. The last thing I saw before the world faded into darkness was the little blue nymph sitting on her behind, hands supporting her back, staring at me in what looked like shocked confusion. And then I was back, students writing, the supervisor staring daggers at me. I was back. Glancing at the clock, it still said ten minutes past the start of the exam. And why does my hand feel? I glanced down and saw my pencil, broken with a little blood and trickling down from my palm. It was almost a year since that strange encounter, and I graduated high school without any issues. I didn't tell anyone about the experience of that day. Being strangely similar to what was popular in the pop culture trends at the moment, at first I immediately thought that I must have been sent to another world, only to realize that objectively more likely scenarios which wouldn't get me laughed at. In spite of my efforts, I didn't see any of my friends jumping out and saying, It's just a prank, bro, or gotcha, or even a cryptic lines which may or may not be a reference to what happened. Nor could I find anything strange in what I ate that day, nor any opportunities for anyone to have slipped me something in my drinks. The supervisor didn't say anything about the pencils instantly becoming snapped, other than some bitchy incredulity about how hard I had to be holding it to somehow manage that. So I ended up writing it off as a mystery, but it got me thinking. If I did get summoned to another world, and it happened like some of the stories I read... Would I be ready? Since my answer to that was a solid no, I decided to do something about it. My sudden obsession with scientific and engineering knowledge actually ended up helping my final semester at high school. Even if the new archery, martial arts, fencing and firearm classes didn't. I was now well into my first semester at uni, studying a flexible first year engineering and science course and I had started to doubt that anything was going to come of that strange experience. At once, until one day at the firing range, as I was raising my rent at Glock 34, the same geometrical pattern appeared on everything and went dark. Opening my eyes, there was the same bright blue bird nymph, sitting down, leaning against the wooden wall behind it. This time, I was determined not to do anything which might spook it and lose my chance at a proper understanding. So I steeled myself to resist, but not overreact to what will come next. It choked weakly, and like last time, I felt my mind trying to convince me to do something. But this time, fear, grief, desperation. And I wasn't trying to order. It was pleading. This time, I understood it immediately. That chirp was, help me. Setting my face in a grim determination, I nodded to the poor creature and turned around to a scene of destruction. We were in what looked like the miniature great hall whose roof was just as tall enough for me to fit. But the tables lay on their sides, broken and cracked, with more of the little bird nymphs littering the floor, many in pools of red blood with a sickening injuries. In the middle of them all, now with its attention fully focused on me, was a massive monster. Massive for the nymphs, that is. It really was about the size of a large dog, reaching about my chest on all fours and was best described as a bastard child of a lizard and a hedgehog. 
The monster tensed its muscles, opened its mouth, and screamed. An unnatural fear came over me, but it wasn't anywhere near as strong as the birdie's suggestions, only causing me to tense and clench my fists, causing me to notice when one I still held my hand. I raised my gun and fired, seemingly instantly, as it is with the speed of bullet travels. There was a spark in front of the creature's forehead, a spray of red behind its head, accompanied by the sound of a metallic snap and then the squelch of exploding brains. The monster's scream stopped and it stood still, frozen in time, then slowly fell forward onto its stomach where it lay unmoving. I wanted to help the other birds, but my head was still processing what just happened. Then I just freck up. What if that was a person? I mean, it does have blood all over its claws and around its mouth, but what if it was a mistake? And all of these nymph things, how can I... My thoughts were interrupted by a single chirp from behind me. Turning around, I felt amazement, relief, mourning. I smiled. At least I had done something right by this one and replied, Anytime. After hearing my words, the little nymph sunk back against the wall, closed its eyes, and lay there still. Just then, I heard frantic chirps getting louder from the corridors, presumably connected to the hall by doors situated at regular intervals on the walls. Turning around, I noticed I was fading again. My legs were already gone, my hands, chest, and then I saw the source of the chirps. Larger, more professional-looking nymphs holding what I could only describe as starves poured through one of the doors. One of them, a tall, for their standards, green-colored one, caught my gaze just as I completely disappeared. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 905 Hazard Bay, written by Scotson The mutants always have sights, Brahms. This one screeches, its mouth nearly reaching the floor as it sprints towards me. As always, the sides and giant teeth make it top-heavy. I duck under its awkward swipe, just barely nudging its skin legs with my boot. It tumbles over, and I place one shot in the back of its head. I shoot a few more times in the torso, because sometimes there's a little parasite in the chest cavity. Those have a habit of sneaking off and trying to eat your face when you think you're done with the job. Which is inconvenient. Talking below. Sounds like whispering in a church, but under a foot of Jenny. I toss a few grenades to the side of the catwalk, not even bothering to look down. I don't have to. I know what's down there. Bad stuff. I know it's bad stuff, because you don't do my job for very long without noticing some patterns. Hi, I'm Johnson from Johnson, Jackson, and Heed Reclamation Services. Your research facility of questionable legality stopped checking in. Military cruiser has been missing for a decade suddenly drops out of hyperspace. Maybe that colony you just set up says they dug up some alien artifact and have started sending you some really weird mail. You want the mundane explanation, but you already know what's happened. Bad stuff. How do you deal with bad stuff? Nuclear fire, usually. But you spent a lot on that facility, ship, or colony. Be a shame if you had to build it all over again, right? That's where I come in. For the modest fee, I clean up your mess the old-fashioned way. No delays, no hidden charges, and absolutely no questions asked. 
They say only a human can do this kind of job. I'd call those people racist, if they weren't absolutely right. Voices, like a thousand really drunk bees talking in unison, bubbles into my skull. It doesn't really say anything it hasn't said since I stepped onto the ghost ship. Join the eternal flesh. We will spread to all stars and all worlds. We are one. We are many. Blah, blah, blah. This voice is particularly annoying. And I blurt out, shut up, before the raving quiets down. A gentle, polite tone sounds out behind me. You okay? Jackson, my aerial combat drummer, follows me everywhere and has seen nearly as much bad stuff as I have. Being a machine, he can't exactly hear disembodied voices, at least ones from a biological source. He hasn't really done much of this job, except perforated view of the abominations who thought it was a wonderful idea to sneak around in the vents. Yeah, this thing is just annoying me again. I turn on my communicator. Hey, Dick. There's the typical silence, followed by an annoyed trill. Yeah? Richard Dick Heed, my ship's pilot, uplifted cetacean. Complete ass. Knows how to fly a ship and can hack almost anything, though. Yeah, this isn't a rogue AI. You can probably relax with the cyber warfare stuff. The typical signs just weren't there. No weird airlock patterns. Every subsystem is mysteriously slave to the central bridge. No evidence of attempted EMP magnetic weapon use, etc., etc. Still, some of the smarter AIs keep either some of the crew or a live cargo around to fool you into thinking everything's dandy. The mutants could have possibly been a cover, but that theory's drying up by the second. Kind of disappointing, honestly. Insane AI jobs are easy money. Go in, find the core, turn it off, maybe deal with the onboard security if the ship is at top of the line. With a combat suit and mag boots, random airlock assassination attempts become a non-issue. I stop my advance up a hall. There's a dead scientist at the end of the hallway. Slumped against the wall, his spectacles half hanging from his face. Seriously, does his hive mind think I'm stupid? I lob a grenade at the corpse. Like a cartoon, I can almost see its eyes bulge out of its skull as it scrambles to escape the explosion. It's partly successful, but that doesn't matter much when the incendiary flak catches its flesh on fire. When it comes to bad stuff, white phosphorus is God's tissue paper. Jackson's rapid-fire MAG cuts the monstrosity down as it tries to shamble towards me, and he makes the same crappy joke about keeping a man warm for the rest of his life. I keep walking, ignoring the room labeled lab, with the ribbons of flesh stretched across the tables and floor. I'm not headed to the bridge. Beginner's mistake. You're not going to find anything up there except a big egos, the PA system, and the captain that either killed himself or became bad stuff. Nah, big money's always in the main engine. The voice comes back, mutters something about ascension, then goes quiet again. I could track down the source of the voice. It's usually just a matter of finding the biggest, ugliest lump of skin that you can find and burning it. But that won't much matter when I open every airlock in the ship and everything except me suffocates. Turns out, I don't even have to hunt it down anyways. Opening the engine room main doors, then immediately jumping back from the two mutants I knew would be there to ambush me. 
I told Jackson to take care of them while I prepared the ship for cleansing. But there's a complication. There's always complications. Remember the lump of skin thing I mentioned? It's attached itself to the main engine. And, oh great, there's some kind of alien artifact stuck in its side. Can't get too close to it, or it'll probably wipe my mind. The artifact also raises uh, questions. Either the artifact infected everyone, or the infection happened by itself, compelled everyone to find the artifact, and then that made everyone more infected. I don't know which annoys me more. I hear a blurted scream to my side. A plasma drill is forced at my face with a bleary-eyed miner. Cultists. Always with the cultists whenever these artifacts are around. It must have kept a few of the crew flesh for God knows what. Whatever. The cultists aren't particularly fast, and whatever ones I can't just knock over, Jackson takes care of. I meander my way over to the main engine's console and fall into my routine. Falsify a heat spike in the main engine room. Falsify rapid temperature rise on two more decks. Computer resumes catastrophic fire on board ship, then the dousing system has failed to control. Airlock safety locks are disabled as a last-ditch effort to extinguish the fire that doesn't exist. Bingo. Open all airlocks. I feel only the slightest of tugs as my mag boots keep me firmly planted against the rushing air. Mutants and cultists alike flail past me in a final effort to grab and pull me into the void. But none succeed. The suction of space also pulls the artifact out of the giant fleshy thing's side with a plop, hurtling past me and towards the black expanse outside. Even when the snarling stops, I keep the airlocks open, not taking any chances. I can tell the sack of flesh on top of the engine is already having a tough time breathing, and I take that as my cue to message Richard. Dirk, airlocks are open, got some stuff in the engine room, but it looks like it's going to choke anyway. Okay, want a message to Origin Navy? In a sec, gotta make the final sweep. I hear a disembodied voice cough, with no other place it could have come from. I turn towards the mass. Sounds wounded angry. Human, it snarls. Such an arrogant species. You've changed nothing. The eternal flesh style still reign victorious. You think I am the only one? I shrug. You things usually go solo. Yeah, wait. Are you a virus or did the scientists in here create you by accident? It ignores my questions. We are legion. We are endless. I see many pinpoints of light from the window. A dozen other warships dropping out of hyperspace. Far more infected than the ship I'm currently on. Giant tentacles wave and writhe from the bowels of several of the vessels. Oh, crusade has only begun, the hippos. What can you possibly say against our holy army? With a click, I unholster my good gun and point it towards the closest thing the bad stuff has to a face. I say that this counts as hazard pay. There is a rumble, there is a scream, and later there is a payday. End of story. 
Tales from Outer Space 906. Story Double One. Star Brothers, written by Voodoo Attack. The humans and the Heary were so much alike. The words common ancestry and parallel evolution were being thrown around whenever the two were spotted together. That meant that those words were being thrown around most of the time. For the two species took to dialogue instantly. They immediately compared evolutionary notes, so to speak, and what they found was astounding. While the two species were so close in physical appearance and mannerisms that some species had trouble telling them and the Urian apart from visual inspection, their underlying genetic makeups were largely compatible. It was almost as though they shared a common ancestor. Even their technological levels were similar. Both upstart species, both utilized fusion as their main source of energy, and both had discovered FTL travel about the same time, although through different technologies. While the Eerie used warp drives, the most basic form of FTL travel used by virtually every other species out there, the humans had something called a shadow drive. It was a device that latched onto the nearest body of dark matter and pulled causing the attached ship to instantly travel vast distances in the blink of an eye, albeit with less accuracy. Both species came into the galactic stage at about the same time, and while their worlds lay in two different parts of the galactic arm, they didn't stop tourists from pouring in from both sides. Yet, there was one core difference between them. The Eerie were peaceful in nature and temperament, and while not completely pacifist, they came close. The humans were not. The humans had not warred in generations, but their history was both fascinating and somewhat repulsive to the Eerie. While both races' greatest inventions were militaristic in nature, the Eerie focused on defense. Their shield generators were unparalleled in the local quadrant. The humans were quite the opposite. Their most advanced technologies were the weapons that fit their fleets. And while they shared defensive innovations freely amongst themselves, they kept their offensive capabilities as secrets they guarded closely, even from one another. You see, the Eerie had a single demarchic governmental body, while the humans had a democratic senate composed of a conglomerate of countries. Despite their differences, in less than 30 years, the humans and the Irians had signed so many treaties and trade pacts that allowed their populations to mingle. So much so, that the estimated number of humans on Eri's homeworld, called Huri, at the time of the attack, mounted to no less than two million. The attack was sudden and very well planned. The Vathia, the Glactrak, and the Uch had been eyeing Eri's homeworld for centuries and while they could not attack them before because of complicated pre-contact galactic law, they could now. Huri lay in a critical warp lane that connected parts of the outer arm of the galaxy to the much richer galactic core, a strategic position for any race that used conventional warp drives, limited by warp lanes to navigate the stars. So the three races had formed an unprecedented alliance to capture that system, instead of paying the billions in goods that they would normally pay as warp tolls to the Eerie. As expected, they watched the Eerie in response, entire fleets converging on the system in less than a day after the initial attack. The Eerie wasted no time. After their initial hails went unanswered, 
they started engaging the enemy forces above their damaged homeworld. The Allied races were counting on this. They left the orbit and withdrew immediately. Then they triggered the secret weapon, a massive bomb they embedded in the planet's core. Nothing survived Huri, became a popular saying after that. With their fleets gone, the Eerie worlds were easy pickings. The Vathia, the Gultrak, and the Uch had the upper hand, and with their initial objectives achieved, they looked at the rest of the Eerie systems. While the Vathia and the Gultrak decided to stop there, the Uch, with the greatest military potential, had other ideas. They rampaged through Eerie space, killing and looting, and, uh, due to their incompatible physiologies, terraforming worlds and settlements they had no use for, thus killing any and all incompatible physiology. And since their worlds were methane-based, this meant that they killed everything that dared to breathe oxygen. It was seen as prudent course of action by the Uch, justified by the fact that everywhere they went, the Eerie were trying to commission more ships to rebuild their fleets. They wouldn't need those worlds anymore. The Uch had not taken into consideration was collateral damage. On every world they destroyed, many humans as well as Irians lay dead in their wake. As humans and Irians started fleeing the Eerie worlds, multiple human relief organizations like the Red Star first responders started flooding in. They'd brought aid, medicine, food, and rescue shuttles for the Irians and humans trapped on the devastated worlds. The Uch had no such concept. All of this was reported by recon drones that the Uch usually deployed everywhere that they went to battle and left behind as a part of their expanding comm network. And so were considered a valid target, especially lucrative because they lacked any kind of visible defense and had unusual FTL technology. The Uch wanted that FTL technology. And so the Uch decided to ambush one of those ships, crack it open, and see what came out. What came out amounted to our worst nightmares. We were a war-driven race, that was true, but we always had a goal in mind, the growth of our broods and amassing wealth. Those were driving forces of our war-making. The atrocities the humans committed in the name of eye for an eye, however, were another level entirely. No other race had a uniquely human concept of salting the land, which the humans did. Over and over, they destroyed entire terraforming operations with radioactive fallout that we had no counter for. Then, the humans found our recon drones and hacked them to spy on us. They did not use warp technology that limits us to neat warp lanes. No. Instead, they used their so-called shadow drives, a way to move in any direction with reduced accuracy. What we now call the human shadow descended upon us. Bombs disguised as basic meteorites started appearing near the far reaches of our star systems, slowly moving into collision course with our planets. The first swarm of meteorites were shot down by our laser defenses as per protocol, but their nuclear detonation sent out EMP pulses sufficient to take our communications networks offline at such close proximity. Then the rest fell in, 
and our worlds were bathed in hues of deadly blue light. We learned later that the humans had a name for it. They called it Cherenkov radiation. Today, the eerie live on human worlds. Their societies merged. The humans and the Eerians went after the Vithia and the Gultrak and stripped them of their wealth. Today, we live on star-faring shelters built by the same Red Star organizations we foolishly sought to attack, quarantined and mutated beyond recognition. We exist only thanks to their kindness. To date, no soul dares brave the ghastly blue, and no one risks abandoning the humans and the eerie, for they have become Star Brothers. End of story. Story number two. The Greatest Sniper in the Galaxy, written by Hidden Fox. A small convoy crossed through the desecrated urban jungle. In a vehicle in the center of the convoy, or maybe at the end, was the leader of this planet's defenses. And they needed to die. So the army did the rational thing. They sent the greatest sniper in the galaxy. The greatest sniper in the galaxy had never failed. Their persistence was unyielding and their dedication was immeasurable. The greatest sniper in the galaxy had arrived in the urban hellscape a day or so earlier. They set up a small camp in the shattered remnants of a high-rise. They could see the whole city from here. And so the small convoy rumbled through the cracked city, bouncing over artillery potholes and driving around all through abandoned defenses. The convoy's green camouflage was juxtaposed against the grey sky and the greyer city. It slowed to a halt. A small piece of sun broke through the cloud cover, glinting off a few remaining windows. A glint in a windowless room went unnoticed. The greatest sniper in the galaxy readied their weapon, a high-velocity plasma cutter wrapped in layers upon layers of insulation. It was invisible to nearly all senses. Through advanced optics, the greatest sniper in the galaxy acquired their target, the leader, adjusting their weapon for the 1,400-meter shot. They waited for the perfect moment. A breath, they steadied themselves, and two weapons readied to fire. And with the sound not too different from stepping on a dry twig, the greatest sniper in the galaxy died. Lieutenant John McLaren grimaced as the enemy sniper collapsed, a purplish-brown goo oozing from holes on either side of their head. 1732.95 meters, he mumbled to himself. Crap, that would put a serious dent in his performance. He hated short-range engagements. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 907 Why Do Humans Never Seem to Die? Written by Guncaster why don't you seem to die? If these manifests are right, some of you have accounts going back millennia, asked the confused draconian. The man crossed the table and looked at him with his brilliant green eyes, and imagined what he might say to the lizard man for but a moment. We are not a mortal, as you understand it. Immortality in and of itself is a faulty concept. Death to a biological organism. 
is the degradation and eventual cessation of bodily functions stemming from a combination of lackluster self-maintenance, DNA degeneration, and external factors such as injuries or disease. We are not immune to these things. Eventually, each and every one of us will suffer total shell failure, given enough time. It is its statistical inevitability. The only variable is how long we can make the time until the shell is either destroyed or somehow trapped in a situation it cannot escape. We didn't defeat some big boogeyman or cheat some god. In the simplest terms, the speed at which we could repair and upgrade ourselves eventually outpaced the speed at which wear and tear could cause failures. Still, even if we couldn't die of old age, we could still die. Accidents happen, and forever is a long time. Long enough for statistical impossibilities to become statistical inevitabilities. For the sake of argument, imagine for a moment, if you would, that a human an individual of the Homo sapiens sapiens species, were to simply become immortal. If their aging were to simply freeze after 25, without any risk of developing cancer or other degenerative diseases, would they live forever, until the heat death of the universe? Of course not. They'd eventually fall off a ladder or down a flight of stairs. Maybe they'd get run over by a car, struck by lightning, or suffer any other lethal freak accident. Some of these may seem cartoonishly unlikely, yes, but the chance of this occurring is greater than zero. And with endless time to spare, the question is not if, but when. For this hypothetically immortal human, the odds came out to roughly 9,000 years, far from immortality that our John Smith was promised, don't you think? So, um, we took that into account. Metals and polymers instead of muscle and bone room temperature superconductors and multiple sets of pumps instead of nerves and hearts, self-contained universal template implants that couldn't be modified, only referenced during cell replication to entirely sidestep uncontrolled mutation, anything that wasn't registered as part of the body being relentlessly attacked and either devoured or rejected by the nanites which supplanted our immune system. But still, that wasn't enough. Our world, our society, wasn't ready for immortality. The oligarchs of old were terrified of the common man, even as it was. Could you imagine how it would be if we introduced the factor that people didn't have to ever die of old age? That they didn't even have to age in the first place? Life can very easily be made into a fate worse than death. So, um, we created the subdimensional hoax. The idea that they invaded because they found us. If they had found us, they'd just have wiped us out before we solved the energy crisis. Before we figured out how to tap into the cosmic ocean between universes as a power source. No, we called them here, just like the predecessors of modern man had. In their mistaken belief that their gods were watching over them ready to protect. Rather than crush them at the first sign of trouble. We dug up dead cultures and reconstructed their rituals, and eventually, one of them worked. Seven seventh sons of seven noble lines, chained to seven seven-sided pillars of polished black stone, and atop an altar of seven sides, seven seventh daughters carved alive into seven pieces each. We prayed for a scare, a small invasion with as few dead as possible. 
The sacrifices were meant to appease the old ones in and of themselves, enough that they wouldn't immediately devour the first people that they saw upon arrival and actually listen to what the priests had to say. That, uh, didn't go as planned, in no fault of ours. The rituals didn't account for the fact that the whole reason the old ones even came to our world in the first place was to see if we had the potential to access the power of the in-between, and wipe us out if we did. It may make me a bad person, but I would tell things as I saw them then. We were lucky. The fact that we only managed to build a single reliquary ship, that wasn't planned, but it gave us the opportunity to pick and choose the seeds of mankind's future. Ideologues, politicians, identitarians, whole families, everyone even tangentially related to rich and powerful. Entire cultures just because they were influenced by undesirable elements or practiced excessive tribalism. All excluded from the archives, barred from boarding the reliquary. We could have taken our families and our loved ones, archived any and anything we wanted, created a world where the only knowledge of Earth was what we saved those that once lived there. We could have made ourselves gods in the eyes of new man. We didn't. We took in those most suited for the new world, then built them bodies suited for the task. They would sleep as digital ghosts for the entire journey. They wouldn't wake any sooner than a mere hours before platform. During their sleep, we uh, excised certain parts of the mind, primitive tendencies which we thought would inevitably lead to the downfall of any civilization, no matter how long lived. The new man wouldn't so tightly cling onto their bodies, for they couldn't afford to. The new man wouldn't be only flesh or only metal, but would be born of both womb and machine. What couldn't be grown, we would make accommodations for during gestation, so that it could be added safely after birth. We didn't even intend for these uh, new men to live forever at first. No, we thought that a pointless endeavor. We had settled for biological immortality long ago by the time the ship reached Nova home. Most of us chose to disappear into nothingness not long after Planet 4, so as to make room for the new generations. Only two of the seven Exodus overseers remain today, in fact. Sigmund still watches over the city he founded and quietly guides the efforts of the one he calls the Kraken. Supposedly, she is to be the progenitor of Nova Home's Golden Age. Myself? I didn't believe at first. Then again, I didn't believe a human being could even harness the unfettered power of the world in between worlds. But there she is. Apologies. I'm getting off target here. I've always been a little scattered-minded. And centuries of nothing to do but think didn't help. The secret of true immortality, the real reason why we never seem to die, is uh, disposability. We'd already figured out how to place the mind into a machine. Sigmund's extensive research into the occult side of our technology helped further it by light years, especially his discovery of synthetic CCUs. See, uh, some people who were exposed to heavy doses of exotic radiation developed these, uh, gemstones made of some sort of exotic matter. Crystallized void energy, we called it. Through, uh, a lot of dissections, Sigmund figured out that he's placed one of these gemstones into the primary cortex of an unoccupied functional body, 
the imprinted mind would eventually root itself in and take control. And so, he started experimenting. I won't go into the, any of the frankly outlandish things he did, but one day he figured out how to reliably and consistently trigger the growth of a CCU and any sapient subject with a void energy affinity above 107. This, in and of itself, was a massive problem. VEA numbers were skewed extremely in favor of new builders. The further removed from the Earthborn bloodline someone was, the more likely they were to have a VEA in the 120s or higher whilst most old worlders were in the 90s to 100s. Then, um, he decided he'd rather not lose a potential customer. Sorry, um, uh, what was your question again? Why do we never seem to die? The green-eyed man asked, before continuing without waiting for an answer. We're a cyborg space liches, figured out how to stick our minds into gemstones ages ago. Now we change bodies like you change clothes. No, there is no price to pay. In a metaphysical sense, you got 3,000 Nova Home credits. Yeah, the cryptocurrency. Okay, it's next Thursday at uh, 1 in the morning, good for you. Please keep in mind that you should set aside at least 3 hours for the procedure and reshelling into your body. Thank you, it's been a pleasure doing business with you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 908 Goodbye, Earth, written by Ogosh. It was a historic time. NA9 reviewed the floating light screen in front of them, simultaneously reading from several others in the periphery. The laboratory around them shifted and morphed like water, changing its color into sterile white, molding its shape into perfect sphere as the transparent viewing portal to be used to observe the growing red star only a few units away. The atmosphere in the sphere pressurized in moments, with chemical composition compared to the planet below. With a pulse, the nanite swarm that had collected the samples reabsorbed into the lab walls, repurposing themselves as assembling constructs to rebuild the specimen. It is NA9's vocation to collect near-terminal data, information on the brink of oblivion. For the most part, this meant traveling to forgotten corners of the universe, to planets falling into the orbit of their stars, or black holes, or catastrophic collisions with other bodies. Many times, most times, the planets in question holds no value, and is allowed to continue to its fate. However, in the unlikely event that an anomaly is discovered, NA-9 would collect the relevant data, recover specimens, and return them to be catalogued for all others of their kind. This was one of those occasions. The planet, in danger of falling into its star as it transformed into a red giant, had showed evidence of biological life at its pole. An extremely rare event, though not unheard of. The planet itself showed many signs of long-lost civilizations. Its structure and people long since turned to dust. Its atmosphere and oceans damaged beyond hope of continuing life. NA-9 paid it no mind as it always does the case with these types of anomalies, that the pre-space-faring sentience would only be discovered hundreds of millions of local cycles after the last of them died. What made this truly abnormal was that the specimen on this planet was recoverable. A complete genome was sequenced, and a synthetic body could be constructed to house it, as if it had never expired. 
It only took a few moments, but the nanites had completed the construction of the specimen. Bipedal, two forelimbs and five digit graspers on each end. A single head with a developed brain and several sensory organs. A dark epidermis and short, dark hairs growing in patches at several parts of the body. An A9 noted the differences in similarities to their own physiology and activated its brain. Marcus jolted awake and heavily inhaled gritted teeth. The overwhelming numbness and fatigue that he had felt only moments ago vanished, replaced by full body tingling and burning lungs. He blinked, his eyes wide and shut it several times, adjusting to the light of his new surroundings. As they fully adjusted, he realized two things. He wasn't in water anymore, and he was naked. What the fuck? He gasped, looking up at his exposed body. The frostbite on his fingers was gone, and on his toes. The numbness of the hypothermia was now a comfortable warmth, like he was back at his office in Ottawa. He looked around to see his bright surroundings, a seemingly perfect ball of smooth white stuff, like plastic. He turned around to look out the window behind him. A massive red sun pulsed angrily in front of him. Below him, a planet. His eyes somehow went wider as he made out the shape of Scandinavia and Greenland. But the color was all wrong. The ocean isn't brown. I... I'm in space. Marcus heard a light buzzing behind him and spun around like an animal. Hovering before him was a ten-foot-tall... Uh, thing... It had two arms and legs and featureless head and a thin body made of the same white material around him. It simply stayed there, floating a few feet in front of him, seemingly waiting. Um, hi, Marcus said, overwhelmed by the whole experience, his wit fading him. The creature continued to stare. Where am I? Again, no answer. Are you an alien? I think so. It suddenly responded in a voice of a young man, slightly softer and almost metallic sounding. Oh, Marcus started. You speak English. I do now. There was an awkward silence as Marcus stared back at the creature, then around at the area and the window behind him. This is your spaceship. Technically, it is yours. I do not require it, but you do. I have assembled its atmosphere to close approximation of your homeworld. Marcus stared over his shoulder, down at the green and brown planet below. That's Earth, huh? Why does it look like that? Earth? The creature tilted its head, an oddly human piece of body language. The name of the planet? Oh, I'm sorry. I feel as if I've heard that word before. The creature lifted one of its arms and suddenly a cloud of grey smoke appeared in its palm, before vanishing again in the blink of an eye. What was that? Marcus looked back at the magic trick. I have sent an inquiry to the mainframe. I wish to cross-reference the word Earth. The creature lowered its arm. Now, as to answer your question. The creature floated next to Marcus, who nervously took a step back as it floated next to him and looked down at the planet. I do not know what time in your species history you came from, though it is likely that your natural body perished millions of local cycles ago. The creature's face pulsed and a splash of navy blue before going white again. Years, that is your word, millions of years. 
Marcus had sunk to his knees before it had finished talking. A forlorn look on his face. Then I'm... Uh, I died there, and... and this... His eyes filled with tears. From outside the window, Earth began to move away. How did I get you, if I'm dead? I found what remained of your original form buried under years of mounted dust and sand at the bottom of the ocean. Were it not for the unique conditions, there would have not been enough to recover you. As it is, it was only barely enough. Marcus wiped his eyes and nose off his forearm and tried to breathe. There was nothing that he could do now but panic. He took several deep breaths and tried to stop shaking. Are you finding it hard to breathe? Should I adjust the oxygen levels? The creature's voice showed concern. No, no, I, I'm fine. I just, um, there's a lot to take in. The silence echoed through the empty orb for a few moments as Marcus composed himself. Did we ever get anywhere? Humanity, he asked. That is unclear, began the alien. Though the debris of the standing structures shows signs of technology, other species achieve at times parallel to space travel. It was like that for you guys. I don't know. My species has existed for so long. We have lost almost all of our history, predating the construction of the mainframe. That sucks. The alien's face splashed blue again. Yes, yes it does. The two stood together at the window, watching as Earth moved slowly away, gaining speed. What happens now? In a few minutes, your homeworld will be destroyed, enveloped by its star as it enlarges through its red giant phase. We may leave if you do not wish to see... No, no. Marcus looked up at the alien suddenly. It's important for the last human to watch the death of his homeworld, right? The alien looked back down at him. I suppose so. They both turned back and watched the planet speed away, becoming smaller and smaller black dot, racing towards a fireball. Though your original body is dead, the alien cut the silence. This vessel is effectively immortal. Should you wish to join my people and I, you are welcome. Though if you wish to expire, it is understood without judgment, and I will respect your wishes. Marcus stood in quiet contemplation for a few minutes. Can I decide later? Of course. NA-9 and the specimen known as Marcus continued to observe the destruction of the planet Earth. It would be any moment now that the planet would be engulfed in the outermost layer of the star and destroyed entirely. From behind them, NA-9's nanite swarm returned from its inquiry mission to the mainframe. The nanites embedded themselves into NA-9's suit, instantly transmitting the relevant data to their brain. Earth, it would seem, was an enigmatic artifact predating the mainframe. Its literal meaning was dirt or soil. But more accurately, it would have been used by the original speakers to describe the land they held domain over. And as the information came together in N.A.'s mind, they looked at Earth one last time with sudden realization. Goodbye, Earth, said Marcus somberly beside them as he placed a hand on the viewing portal. Earth, NA-9 raised their own hand to the portal. The home world. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 909. Hot cock, written by Squiggly. Hot? <laughs> Hot cock. 
Deep breath and Hardcock written by Squiggle Story <laughs> Hardcock written by Squiggle Story Studios. But that's poison. The arson sat at his desk rubbing through the transmission and other paperwork when his secretary Tavu entered his office carrying a silver platter and cover. Good noon, sir. Good noon, Tavu. What do you have there? Well, sir, Secretary Tavu smiled, placing the silver platter on his superior's desk. The chefs wanted you to have the special today while it's hot and fresh. The arson looked suspiciously between the foo and his assistant, whose eye stalks began to wobble nervously. Nonsense! I always eat in the mess hall, the arson insisted. He'd built his career on slumming it with the troops and wasn't about to stop now. Carry it down with us. I've been cooped up in my desk all day. I need to stretch my legs. Sir, I would strongly advise against that. The blue little mollusk descendant tried to dissuade his moss, blocking the doorway and stretching out his arms and ice stalks. But he was simply outmatched and ranked by the towering red avian. Tabu, what is wrong with you? The arson snapped his beak. Well, sir, I am... Tabu sighed. The mess all is... uh, a currently unsafe environment. The arson unfurled his feathers incredulously. An unsafe environment aboard an alliance vessel. A death wilderness regiment is part of the last pickup, and they've taken over the vessel for some sort of ritual. Zar raised a quilled eyebrow. Ritual? He questioned. Wasn't a hazing? I'm sorry, hazing. I think I'll go down to the vessel. If it is what I think is going on is going on, then it shall be most entertaining. The messel was where the many alien species of the Alliance forces congregated to eat, but you currently wouldn't know it. In the back corner, there was a clear and distinct barrier between the regular crew and their death world guests. A row of empty tables separated the seven loud humans and fifty or so horrified onlookers. Zarsan didn't make his arrival known but stood back and watched the most familiar sight to him unfold. Patal! Patal! The Death Worlders chanted as one young recruit poured a red, thick sauce over his regulation ration porridge. The stench of the stuff was enough for everyone to keep their distance. It was noxious and burned the air with its bitterness. Agent Patal swallowed the large spoonful, letting out a roar of victory. The other human commandos slammed their fists onto the metal tables mimicking the rumbling of a thunderstorm. The rowdy cries and cheers were apparently too much for one attending major, daring to cross the threshold and address the Death Wilder squad. Are you quite finished? The major scoffed, grabbing the attention of the closest agent, who unfortunately was a mountain of muscle and blonde fur. What? This reprehensible decorum you conduct yourself with is unsightly in every possible way. Do you all know who we are? The blonde, muscled human growled. Humans of some description, the major sneered. You're a model lot, hard to tell from one first glance. Now the entire group of rowdy humans were silently watching the exchange, the predators before striking their prey. Zarsan chuckled under his breath, knowing exactly how this was going to pan out for Major Suach. We're an infiltration unit. Who brought you boys an opening you'll need for the 1st Battalion of Ostark? 
The blonde muscle folded his arms in front of him. You'll need to be thanking us, agents, or you'd still be waiting for them three their frigates. It was only now that the Major noticed his apparent size, but was only mildly perturbed. Major Suach, arrogance outweighed his common sense because all he heard was the crew's rank and stupidly thought he could throw his command around. Well, I am Major Suach, and I don't care who you are. I will have order in this mess hall. It went down about as well as Zoss had expected. The blonde mountain of muscle leaned right into the Major's face and belched out in perfect audibility. Break. Be as old. The Major squealed in pain and began rolling on the floor in pain, by all accounts suffering first-degree burns to his face. The humans roared with laughter, the last man receiving camaraderie high-fives, and then he was given a beer. Well, for the new Houston Vipers, and you're all stock-eye sons of bitches can get fucked. The man then proceeded to thrust his crutch into the air in a sign of dominance. The rest of the agents spun in line behind their comrade, throwing more sinister jeering at the other members of the mess hall. Zarsen was all for a healthy dose of questioning authority, but he had to draw the line at harassment of a fellow Alliance troops. The situation was beginning to get ugly, so he had to handle this delicately or they could all be suffering from an onslaught of gaseous capsaicin. Zarsen stepped forward toward the blonde leader, Sizing him up with a cool smile. New Houston Vipers, hmm? Do you mind if I borrow this? Zarsen pulled a can of mace from the Death Wilder's belt kit and sprayed it in his already contaminated porridge. He then promptly scooped up a loaded spoon into his claw and swallowed with ease. And then another and another until he had eaten the entire bowl without breaking a sweat. Zarsen dropped the empty bowl on the table before taking a deep breath and bellowing at the humans. You death worlders think that you can come aboard this ship and swing your big dicks around expecting everyone to suck it. Well, I am the big cock on this frigate, Admiral Ambassador Zarsen, and if I catch any of you sorry maggots waste any more of that chili, I'll see to it that your commander and chief... Chancellor Hartman knows about it. He reached over for a beer, popping open the cap with his beak and sculling it to make a point. Agents of the United Solar Systems are the finest troops in the Alliance. Can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah. I said, can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah. Right, now get your nasty asses to the shower. If you can burp the face of that stupid son of a witch, I don't want to be in range of a thought. Davu feared for Zarsen's life, as much to the astonishment the humans didn't tear him to shreds. Laughters and cheer even. A few of the humans grumbled, but were reassured by the comrades and soon they began packing up. The Death Wilders were actually listening to the Admiral Ambassador. Sir, that was amazing, Davu marveled, following after Zarsen. Don't be fooled by their bolstering. Death Worlders, especially humans, are just soldiers like you or I. The Admiral Ambassador explained, walking over to the elevator doors and waiting for the doors to open. I've worked alongside hundreds of species, but I'll never forget my time aboard the USS Optimus Prime. 
Never before or since have I had the pleasure of working alongside a more passionate and loyal bunch. They stepped inside and the arson pressed the button for down. Sometimes they need a strong hand, or a voice in this case. Humans often communicate through unnecessary yelling. Tivu nodded sagely to the advice of his superior. Um, sir, where are we heading? To the infirmary, of course, Sir Arson chittered. What? You see, back when I was just a captain, I was assigned to work aboard the USS OP. Sergeant Hartman told me that avians can't feel the burning of capsaicin, a trick we used to play on privates when I would swallow Carolina Death Reapers whole. But if you can't feel the burning, then why? Are you headed to the infirmary? Well, uh, I do enjoy a good jelly, but the fermented drink, beer, will eat through my stomach lining, and the alcohol content will most certainly poison my blood. The arson looked up at the elevator's timekeeper. And I've got about 15 minutes to get my stomach pumped before I'd be deader than Suak's career prospects. The arson then coughed, spluttering a small but sour-smelling cloud. Tavu gulped and took a healthy step back from his superior, lest he be a victim of capsaicin gas of either end. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 910 Why do we defer to humans? Written by JDM5544 Why do we defer to humanity, you ask? The answer is a simple one for any of the rim species but I understand that it may be more difficult to understand from your point of view. Allow me to explain. My people, the Narani, are rightfully considered the greatest scientific minds in our little corner of the galaxy. We are the ones who discovered the galactic conglomerate, after all. We also had the highest rate of technological advancement in our own little region of the arm, and were expected to surpass the galactic conglomerate within the century. Quite a feat, wouldn't you say? The Vergras are clearly the most populous, having a population of close to half a trillion compared to humanity, the second most populous, with just over 10 billion. In addition to the Vargras lay hundreds of eggs at a time and reach adulthood in a single human year. Why do we use humans' orbit for their home planet as a standard? Simple. It is so close to the average of all of our home planet's orbits that it is easier to use rather than create a new system. Now, as I was saying about the Vagras, that means that geniuses occur more often in their species than in any other for purely mathematical reasons, allowing them to achieve scientific breakthroughs quite often. The Sandman have the greatest of the arts of all the species in the room. A simple way for us to test our empathy is to read a sane man tragedy to the suspect and if they do not break down in sadness, then we know of their condition. But their arts go beyond the literature, portraits, paintings, sculptures, and even music. None can hope to surpass them in these regards. And last but not least, the Thurians, the greatest warriors in the room. Their knowledge of war is unmatched in the room. Strategies and tactics are taught to them from a young age. To face the Riam assault fleets with anything less than overwhelming force is simply suicide. And even then, victory is not guaranteed. When the humans first met us, we were in the middle of a long and bloody war with no end in sight. The same man was simply hoping to avoid conflict wherever possible. The Riam tactics would often conquer... 
Vagras numbers would overwhelm, and the Nurani science rained death upon all. This three-way war was fought over a hundred human years, and it was over in less than three human years. Human science nearly matched our own, and would often understand how our weapons worked, if not how to replicate it. A single human soldier was oftentimes enough in simple combat for a hundred Vagras, and with proper tactics as much as a thousand. Human tactics meant that, uh, for the first time in war, the Thurians faced a surprise tax, traps, and hundreds of other things that neither the Vagras nor my own people had thought of. Perhaps most astounding of all, the greatest of the human arts was on par with the Sainman's own. In short, humanity was the second best at everything, which meant that they were the best in this war. They struck where we were weak. They did not attempt to match the Narani science with human science, but rather with numbers. They did not match the Vagras with numbers, but rather tactics. And they did not match the Thurians with tactics, but rather science. Did humanity conquer us, you ask? No, though we all expected it. No, instead humanity defeated us all and formed the council. We expected the council to be little more than a front for the human interests, and for a time it was. The humans were granted rights to colonize worlds that had never known them, to trade with others in an unfair exchange. Yet in time, the humans did something most peculiar. The Narani are organized by scientific advancement at degrees. In short, the more knowledge you can prove you have, the higher your position in our society. For example, I myself have seven degrees in fields related to war and ships, and thus have a place in the middle of the Narani society. The Vergras have an even simpler system. The eldest amongst them lead those younger. As they live and die quickly, the oldest only ever having lived up to 25 human years old. Their leaders are routinely replaced. The Thurians had a military hierarchy, of course, their greatest warriors and generals making up the leadership of the worlds and keeping them organized and defended. Their high commander is a veteran of 70 battles, or so I've heard. The Sainmans are perhaps the closest to humanity in the sense that they're not being any true government. Instead, their people debate a course of action based on the merits of their culture. Rarely is anything done on their planet as a result. Humanity, however, had a curious method of government. Individuals would tell the masses they, and they alone, were the best choice for leadership, and would debate others who claimed otherwise. Yet often, the positions they came to occupy were not ones of singular power, but collective power. It took an agreement of over 600 individuals to make any decisions, and even then, it could be overturned by the military leader, who himself could make no laws. And even then, it could be overturned by the justice dispensers. It was a confusing system. We quickly learned that humanity almost never agreed with each other, and would often have conflicts with those whose policies are almost identical. They had an unusual idea called compromise. Well, they despised it. It seemed to be the only way laws were passed. It was where they would concede on some points to enforce others. In fact, it was the very disagreement that allowed other species of the room to gain power in the council established by humans. But by this point, humanity had set themselves up as the traders and diplomats of the room. It had been a scarce 30 years since the war had ended, 
and yet the humans had already made it nearly impossible to wage war against each other. The Narani needed Thurium ships to defend against pirates while our science ships traveled. The Thurian needed Senman music and arts to inspire their troops, and the same man needed Vagras materials to make their great works of art. The Vagras needed Narani technology to ensure a humane quality of life for their many citizens. And there was humanity, traveling between the stars and trading with all, the middleman, as they called themselves, and aided in settling disputes throughout the realm. Yes, I assure you this is important to answer your question. The war had required all of our resources for a hundred years that we had fought, and as a result, our exploration efforts were non-existent. As the war ended, only humanity had the resources to commit to exploration, and so they did so, and as we gained resources, so did we. In the last ten years, the Council of the Room has nearly tripled its size, and even here, humanity was odd. Its colonies, as opposed to being thankful and subservient to the homeworld, as was the case with every other species of the realm, instead demanded more freedoms and autonomy. And while it never escalated to full-scale war, it became quite tense amongst human colonies. So imagine our surprise when we met you, the galactic conglomerate ruler of the galactic center and rightful ruler of all the rest, and when you, host so graciously offered us a non-voting seat in your parliament. We discussed it, and we decided to reject it and offer you a trade agreement. When you then sent us a proclamation that we would be conquered as a slave species if we did not accept your offer. Once more, we convened and discussed the issue, and once more, despite knowing it would lead to war, chose to reject your offer. Why do we defer to humanity? you ask. The answer is simple. Humanity, the most diverse and divided species in the room, of any that we had met until that point, voted on it, and they nearly unanimously voted to reject both deals. Imagine that, if you would. The single most divided species in our area had twice voted in near-total agreement to reject this deal. Is there any parallel in your history? They assured us that we could fight against you, and more than that, we could win. We couldn't conquer you, no, but we could certainly wear you down. And we have, haven't we? This war has been going on for nearly five years by our measurements, and with humans at the lead, we have won battle after battle against you. This is your final attempt to gain knowledge and, as the humans say, get an edge over us. How does it feel to know that you have failed? To know that you started a war with the second best species at everything? Because I will tell you what you should feel. No, not you personally, I suppose. But your leaders, the organizers of this war. The humans have a saying based off the limbless reptile native of their home planet that it can be very dangerous and there is only one sure way to kill it. To cut the head of the snake. In this case, you are the snake, your leaders are the head. So tell me, what do you think your leaders should feel? They should feel nothing but fear. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 911 Tribunal Regarding Terran Confederacy War Crimes 
The room Admiral Lawrence Smith stood in was not a small one by any means. Considering the sheer number of delegates it had to hold each day, it was hardly surprising. She stared out from her seat at the array of species seated in the Galactic Senate, her eyes drifting down from the just inducted and considerably slimy tecton at the far fringes to the scintillating feathered quit, and finally resting on the delegate sitting closest to the central platform that she was seated on. That row was comprised of the Galactic High Tribunal, a collection of five species that acted as supreme judges regarding interspecies issues. They were the Hengal, who had been humanity's first contact and sponsor into the UGCS, who knew apes and four-armed crocodile-jackal hybrids would get along so well. The Karolth were next in line, carefully preening one of its six wings with sharp beak. The Tilth's representative looked rather disturbed to be next in line, considering the problem his species, things that looked like a ferret with too many eyes in weird places, had with avian predators on their homeworld. That was hardly surprising. Lauren was just impressed that he hadn't tried to cocoon himself yet, which put him ahead of the Glow representative, who'd retracted almost fully into its chitin save for one of its heads. The last two had her pursing her lips. The frillless weren't a problem. They got along rather well with the humans, though both hoped neither species ever found out exactly why. When aliens resemble your favorite pets, it can get, uh, awkward. No, it was what she was discussing, and with who. She tapped the translator, masquerading as an earring, deciding to listen in for a bit. Cannot continue this line of conversation if you insist on these vague threats. Deific expletive, you are accusing a member of a species of serious war crimes and... A tentacled cross between a gator and a chipmunk interrupted her. And so my leaders simply wanted known that if justice is not served, it will weaken the ties between our people. Negotiations regarding colony rights are strained as it is. Surely you don't wish to exacerbate such. But that was more than enough. She was tired of this idiocy. Besides, her communicator had just beeped in a particular pattern. Admiral Lauren stood, and the assembled aliens quieted. Not out of respect, though. I am sure some of you are wondering why you can only hear me now. One of your cyber specialists decided my little speech here was more important than your squabbles. So shut up, sit down, and listen. She snapped her fingers, and a hollow field appeared behind her a rotating will on it, she continued. We were assembled today to discuss several matters, but those concerning me and my people are what we are accused of. We have been accused of several crimes under galactic law, including violation of Talvril trade accords, breaking galactic warfare doctrine, and assorted general war crimes. She glanced at the datapad on her desk and snorted. The first two counts I can honestly dismiss out of hand. We weren't even using ballistic weapons when the travel accords were written for one, and the charge you've labeled us with is ludicrous. We stopped trade with the Morag during wartimes, and you accuse us of using deadly conflict to enrich private interests. We haven't even stopped trade with the Togal, and they're the Morag's closest allies. Our lawyers are actually enjoying this one. You cannot honestly say refusing to trade with someone that we're at war at 
fits this criteria. She looked up and raised an eyebrow. And really, you have the galaxy-wide doctrine of warfare you expect all species to adhere to. That is without a doubt the stupidest thing that I have heard in the past cycle. She shook her head and continued in a more full tone. I dismiss our breaking the galactic warfare doctrine for two reasons. One, because we never knowingly signed it. It was hidden as a rider within the 97th trade agreement that was pushed as a requirement for our joining the greater United Galactic Civilizations. And we likely would have rewritten it entirely if we'd spotted it. Further, the rider was hidden after the fact, since we went over all of those with a fine-tooth comb and it was not there when we signed it. The second, it just is laughable. Honestly, some of our best military advisors almost hurt themselves laughing at it. Parts of it are admirable, certainly. We would never knowingly target a civilian outpost or condone war slavery of any kind. But all the war crimes you listed are our use of stealth, of hit-and-run guerrilla tactics, and our use of ship-disabling technology. She looked up with an almost pained expression. Gentlemen, women, and neuters, the Daring Confederacy is outgunned three to one by the Morag, and they had better attack bigger ships and, frankly, would steamroll us if we kept up your doctrine. She raised an eyebrow. Honestly, it seems the only reason the Morag have as many military victories as they do is the strange notion you all have that warfare must be honorable. Stand up slugging matches between two armies. She glanced at a data pair, and something happened to harden the lines in her face. Oh, the last war crime. Extensive civilian casualties. I do notice that only the Terran Confederacy has been charged with this. The loss of so many innocents in this war is truly saddening. 23,000 Morag civilians. She glanced back at the hollow screen for a moment. This was New Avalon. It was a garden world, to us at least. Total population, 3.2 billion. Total civilian population, 3.01 billion. It was not a military outpost. The image behind her changed. She stared out over the amassed crowd of aliens with cold eyes as several ships edged into view before they went black. What you just saw were Morag battlecruisers. More of them. Her voice was calm controlled and almost robotic in a lack of motion. They glassed the planet. It took them two weeks. The view snapped back on, this time on the surface, a small city. Something flashed in the sky. The more savvy of those watching knew it to be a kinetic harpoon. And there were visible shockwaves. Half of the city was obliterated instantly, and whatever was watching the city tumbled from the air into the remains. The image flickered, showing people streaming from their homes as a pillar of fire launched from the sky, searing everything and its path into charred nothing. Dust and ash kicked up, obscured the camera until it was consumed. The image flickered again, showing a room full of injured humans of all ages. A wave of silver crept up to cover the window before the wall dissolved, allowing a flood of metallic grey in that slowly liquefied everything before it froze into a solid mass of metal. The images continued, more cities destroyed, bombing communities burnt, individuals choking on ash and dust. 
Admiral Lauren leaned against the desk, glaring at the assembled judges and jury with eyes of burning steel. The Morag burned one of our civilian garden worlds, and they didn't even have the decency to do it quickly, she said in that same level tone. The Terran military has killed fewer Morag civilians during the entire war than the Morag did in this one attack, and we have dutifully reported every single one, as outlined in your doctrine, as outlined by basic common transparency. And I will remind you that over two-thirds of those were from a single colony drop that is still under investigation. She jabbed her finger back at the screen. And yet I hear nothing of the Mirage crimes. This is one of three, three garden worlds that were burned and five that they have targeted. They make claims of faulty information regarding military installations, but a five-minute scan would have revealed what these worlds are. She slapped her hand against the table and glared pointedly at the Morag sitting on the left of the tribunal. The Morag are one of the most advanced races in the Senate, with the single largest empire. And they get away with this, she said flatly. You accuse the Terran military of war crimes for what? Hit-and-run tactics, guerrilla ambushes, cyber warfare against enemy ships. She smiled and let out a noise that the translators flagged as humorous outburst, but most present found it very threatening. You accuse us of war crimes for using tactics that let us win against an enemy with better tech, bigger ships, and a bigger army. Honestly, I think you lot are just mad we're showing you up by kicking their ass. She stood upright again. We do not enter a plea for any of the charges against us. The first is ludicrous to ascertain. The second should not be legally binding in any case. And the last is, frankly, just proof that this council is either deeply corrupt or simply terrified of the Morog's military might. She paused and bared her teeth in a feral grin. And judging by the Morog delegate's expression, if I can read her antenna correctly, she knows that the war is over anyway. She turned and snapped her fingers again. The hollow field flickered and showed a scene of surprisingly bloodless carnage. A palace of some kind had a wall blown in, with a line of Morocco cowering under the guns of two dozen Terran marines. Only one didn't have a gun pressed to the head, and it stared directly at the communicator. This is the Morag Empire High Council. We wish to begin negotiations for peace with the Terran Confederacy immediately. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed. All the links to the relevant stories are down below. And if you wish to support the channel, there are links down there too. I hope that you all have a wonderful one, and I'll see you all next week. Cheers.